Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 139. I wanted to thank everybody for your patience uh, in the last week, because this episode was supposed to be last week, but uh, just schedules kept getting uh, things pushed back, so we wound up just doing uh, posting another mini-sode, so thank you for that. Uh, I'm here with my uh, with this this week's co-host, Robert Hornack. Robert, how you doing? What's up, Tyler? Not much. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well, actually. Oh, good. All right. That's yeah. exciting. Um, so we've got a lot of ground to cover. We're talking about uh, Damien Chazelle's... Is that how you say it? Boy, I don't know. Okay. It's, I, I feel like that's how I've heard it before. Um, we were talking about uh, his film Whiplash, which uh, I'm very excited to talk about. But before we do, I wanted to uh, regale you all in a fun story. I love story time. I feel like you're diminishing what I'm saying, but uh, we can move on. So this last week, uh, this last weekend, pardon me, was crazy for me in a lot of ways, a lot of like a lot of highs and a lot of lows, Um, mostly highs, but the low is pretty rough. Uh, So my wife was out of town, so I was basically alone all week, and then I had to get ready for Alpha Omega Con, but I... On both sides of Alpha Omega Con, I also had LA Podcast Festival to go to, which oh, wow. I, which Battleship Pretension pays for me to go. And if it if it didn't, then I might have not gone to it simply because like I've I've got to worry about Alpha Omega Con. Um, but uh, it was paid for, so I figured I should go. Um, so Friday night, I hung out with I, I wound up being invited to dinner with a lot of the comedians that I know that have been on Battleship Pretension I just got to hang out and watch them make jokes with each other and nice. it was a lot of fun that is fun and it felt really great and a good portion of why I go to LA Podfest is to keep up contacts and networking and stuff like that and sure. so that was really great and I felt really good about uh, going into Alpha Omega Con the next day I went down with my friend Joel and the two of us uh, covered the table for a little while. And I will say that, uh, so I had a panel at 1230 this past Saturday that I programmed and moderated. And I had, I found out that our panel was happening at the same time as a Doug Jones panel. Hmm. I I had emailed, I had uh, emailed Doug to be on mine. And then he had said, well, actually I'm going to be having my own. And I thought, Oh, that's great. But uh, but I didn't know that it was going to be the same time as mine. Yikes. And you know, one thing that I I feel like in the future I may I may talk to the people that organize Alpha MegaCon and basically say when you have somebody who is as popular as mm-hmm. Doug Jones, don't schedule anything next to it so that people so that a the other panelists like me I would have liked to go to his, um, but also so that people don't have to make a choice. Um, but despite that, my panel was very well attended, um, which I was very excited about. Um, it was me, uh, an actress named Carmi Felwalk, friends of the show, Jason Eakin, uh, Bill Overs Jr., Reed was a part of the show, and then a pastor named Fred Price. Um, and then we actually had one more guy, uh, a pastor, who wound up being a no-show because uh, what we didn't know and what he didn't know was that he had been double-booked by the... Uh, by the uh, the convention runners, um, and the other panel did not have as many panelists, so his absent would absence would have been felt more there. So he went right. over there, and and it was fine. Like we had five panelists and me, we we were fine. Um, 
but it was really great. Uh, the audience was engaged. Mm. The panelists all gave great answers. Afterwards, I got to talk to a lot of the people that were there. Uh, and some of them disagreed with some of the stuff that we said, which allowed for a, a, a more in-depth conversation. It was a really great day. Um, and I'm very excited to go back next year. The the It's starting to feel more like a standard comic convention, which is a good thing. The, Wait, I don't go to these, so what does that mean? Well, it means that last year, so there's the exhibit floor. Okay. Um, exhibition floor, uh, floor, pardon me, where people have their booths set up. And last year, it was just kind of this weird hodgepodge of things, of, of people just kind of throwing, you know, b- paying for their table, not really knowing what the audience was going to be, just a lot right. of stuff being thrown at the wall, not really sure what sticks. This year, there was a lot more stuff that I think was... Uh, of people knowing the audience, comic uh, comic book fans, movie fans, mm-hmm. uh, video game fans, okay, toy collectors, stuff like that. So the booths, it felt a lot more like Comic Con or WonderCon or something like. Well, they that. learned from their mistakes from last year. Yeah, I think it was right? that, um, and it was great. I was very, and I got to, you know, I I actually wound up buying some things at uh, some huh. exhibit booths with, which was a lot of fun. Um, and I think more people actually came to the uh, came to Alpha Omega Con last year. I think only about five hundred people came through, which for the for the venue is a perfectly That's fine a great number. number. Uh, this year, I would not be surprised if it was probably closer to seven hundred, seven fifty. Hmm. Um, I would also not be surprised if within a couple of years they have to find a different venue. Well. So, but that's great. That's that's a really great thing. I'm happy that it's successful. I was very happy. Where where, where was it again? It's in La Mirada. It's, La Mirada. It's, it basically happens at a church. The exhibit floor okay. is in a gym. Okay. Um, and then the various panels are in like you know Sunday school rooms and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, but it's it's run pretty well. There's a couple administrative things that need to be worked out ahead of time. But it was a really great experience. I was very excited. The next day, I was going to go to I was going to go back to LA Podfest, and then I got an email. On Sunday, so I was riding high on Saturday. Sunday comes along, and I got an email that I'm reluctant to even say on here. But this this podcast is all about being open. Do it. Uh, I was I was denied my my application for membership uh, with the Online Film Critics Society was denied. Now I applied two years ago, and it was denied then as well because I did not meet the basic logistical requirements. No, I don't know much about that, but about that group. But I, I believe that isn't isn't the requirement just like how many words or how many how many posts you put up that are reviews. You would th- uh, no, it is not that. As I came to discover, oh, I see. Um, they in the in the email they sent me, they made it clear that uh, that I fit all the I met all the re- all the uh, requirements of like the number of articles and stuff like okay. that. Um, and they were, they basically said that it is either, because it's a form letter, so they didn't like tailor it to me uh, specifically. So they have two form letters. One is you didn't meet the requirements, and the other is you did meet the requirements, but our, I believe they put it in quotes, our talent scouts could not come to a consensus on, le- on letting you in. And that's it's basically people that read sure. your articles. Mm-hmm. And so they said it is either a function of your website design or your content well david's part of the online film critic society so i know from a website design that's not the case sure so it has to have been the content of my written work and that yeah really got to me um 
and they say stuff like, and I'm going to, by the way, I'm gonna, it's going to be a hard time. I'm going to have a hard time not swearing right now. I'll say that uh, because I've been swearing about it for a week. <laughs> um, but uh, can I, before you go on, I think, okay. I mean, I, I want to know, so maybe others want to know as sure. well. Um, when you're applying for this, are you applying for it under the, the headline of Battleship Retention? You, this you, or both? It's both. Uh, okay. It's Tyler Smith, and they say, you know, uh, a total of 100 minimum articles. Okay. So between Battleship Retention and More Than One Lesson, I have 100 articles. Great. Uh, certainly more now. But um, so I did both, and. You know, it's pretty, and what they do say is, you know, we encourage you to just keep working and uh, keep improving your, Ugh, you know. typical rejection. Yeah, and the thing is just like, you know, I've been doing this, I've been doing this for years now. Yes. And without getting, without specifically saying where I can improve, part of me is just like, well, this is the only way I know how to do this. Right. So unless you're going to give me specific notes on how I can improve, I don't really know any other way to write my articles and how to approach film and all that sort of thing. So it was, so it really got to a much deeper thing of why am I even doing this? Should course, I even be yeah. doing it? Obviously I entertain the notion of, well, I'm certainly not going to write anymore. Uh, and maybe I'll just go ahead and stop podcasting as well, because really what's the point? If hmm. the easiest uh, critic society to get in thought I was not good enough, then what's the point? And it was pretty rough, and I did for a moment, and other people have asked this, I did for a moment entertain the notion that maybe they didn't like the Christian stuff. Hmm. Even though I tend not to incorporate, even on more than one lesson, my written reviews, I tend not to incorporate a lot of it into them. Um, But maybe they just didn't like it. Maybe they uh, had a certain attitude about that. People have suggested that. I honestly don't think that's the case. Um, wouldn't, it, it, wouldn't it be nice though to oh if that were the case then I could play the martyr card of course marvelous yeah. but I gen- I genuinely don't think that's the case I, I honestly think that I write in a, in a style that is conversational maybe not formal enough mm-hmm. um, and maybe they took that as being pedestrian so that was a low and Jen was out of town and I was at LA Podfest and there were, and I had no friends that I could talk to. I did send out a text to some people in my, uh, in my Bible study and, and they said like, Hey, do you want to hang out? And I was like, I can't, I got to do this thing. So I was talking with a couple of, uh, a couple of the people that I had had uh, dinner with on Friday, a couple of comedians. And then up walks a guy named Jimmy Pardo. Now, I don't know if you know that name. I know the name. Jimmy Pardo has him, been... I don't know the name. He's been on Battleship Retention a couple of mm-hmm. times. He's a podcaster. He started a show called Never Not Funny. Funny guy. Without that show, Battleship Retention wouldn't exist. Um, because we listened to that and thought, this is amazing. It's the show that got, got me it. into the concept of podcasting. And and so we regularly okay. say that, like, without Never Not Funny, there would be no Battleship Retention. So I know Jimmy, and he walked up. But I also, Jimmy's a hard guy to read sometimes, and I was kind of under the impression that he doesn't really care for me um, Hmm. very much. And so he came up and was talking with these guys, and then suddenly no one's talking to me, so I'm just kind of standing there awkwardly, and I thought, maybe I'll just walk away. But then Jimmy whips around to me and says, he says, hey, I heard that you saw that M. Night Shyamalan film, The Visit, and that you thought it was scary and funny. I was like, uh, 
where did you hear this? And he said, well, so-and-so mentioned that you saw it. And I said, yes, that, I, that's true. And he said, what did you, because he just, he had seen it like the day before. He's like, what did you find funny about it? He, and I said, well, and he goes, you know what, hang on one sec. So he grabs my arm and like pulls me up aside to like a more private area. And the two of us sit down and he starts asking me what I thought about the visit, why I thought it was funny and that sort of thing. And let me talk about stuff. And he said, that's very interesting and blah, blah, blah. And it was exactly what I needed (laughs) because I had convinced myself that why does anybody care what I have to say? Obviously, I'm a completely mediocre critic, both in how I think about movies and how I communicate. According about them. to these people, you don't know, perhaps. Right, and they gave no indication. They they gave they basically said that it's the content, but they didn't say what aspect right. of it. But anyway, but Jimmy pulls me a guy who I respect and a guy that, frankly, I thought had wanted nothing to do with me. Right. Um, he pulls me aside, and we have this conversation, and. And I'm thinking in that moment, like, this is really amazing. And this is kind of an answer to prayer right yeah. now about where I am. And so I thought, so after that conversation was done, I did say, Jimmy, let me tell you something. It's like, you couldn't have possibly known this when you pulled me over here, but this is exactly what I need, what I needed. And here's why. And I explained what had happened mm-hmm. and he was very sympathetic. And he told me about like how, in his line of work, he is regularly praised by other comedians. They really respect what he does. And it's true. What he does is very hard to do. Um, and he talks about like, you know, he goes, I keep getting these compliments from other comedians and it feels great. He goes, but he goes, but even after decade, even after like two decades in the business, he's like, I still have a hard time like getting a show off the, like a show Mm -hmm. off the ground. Like so many networks say, "Mm, that's fine. That's a neat idea, but no, we're going to say no. He's like, and so after a while you start to wonder, what am I even doing this for? Mm -hmm. Am I just looking to amuse my comedian friends or am I trying to do something, you know? And so in his own way, and of course he's remarkably successful in his field, but in his own way he could relate. And, and we just had a really nice connection and I, and it was a nice reminder that even the people that I respect tremendously and are, wildly successful in what they do even they have experienced this and it just really uh it was what i needed at that moment very Um, providential very providential um i did not say to jimmy hey you're an answer to prayer because he might i don't know how he would have taken that but uh but it was a really nice moment of connection between me and somebody that i admire and it came at a very specific time And, and it really felt as though god said hey i know you're hurting right now and your wife's not around your friends aren't around There's really, it's like, you're not in a position to be comforted. But you know what? I'm not going to let that limit me. And in fact, I'm going to bring somebody in here who you, who you would never think this would come from. And that's what it's going to be. And so my Sunday night, so my Sunday was as low as, as I can get right. and ended on a very high note. And that's I, was very, I was very excited about it. So that, I wanted to tell that story because... You know, it's not as though I got an email from the Online Film Critics Society saying, we made a mistake. We sent you the wrong letter. Not only can you be a a member, you'll be the president. Like, (laughs) it's not, that didn't happen, you know. Uh, And some would say that that's the only way to show, for God to show that he was looking out for me. Uh, But to me, the way that worked out uh, shows that God cares about me. He understands when I'm feeling down, when I encounter adversity, and he will provide comfort where he can, even if I'm not 
even if he's not going to provide the exact thing that I want at that moment. So, and also in talking about success and trying to improve and that sort of thing, I thought that might also play into today's topic. Of course. Um, so yeah, that was a story that I wanted to tell and maybe listeners uh, will get something out of it. I don't know. I only have one question. Okay. From that whole story. Okay. Why didn't you call me? Why didn't I call you? I don't know. Sorry. What were... Don't you have my number? I could say, hey, Tyler, you're talented, you're funny, you're uh, eloquent. Well, that's nice of you to say, but that is... I mean, I texted people just basically to kind of let them know what I was feeling and sure. all that sort of thing. And and honestly, the reason that I told the story on here is not so that listeners can affirm me and say, those guys are wrong, you know, or anything yeah. like that. I don't... I, I don't really need to necessarily be affirmed. It might be that I'm, maybe I am not a good, maybe I'm actually not a good writer, or maybe I'm just not the kind of writer they're looking for. They, I'm not very academic. I am pretty conversational, and maybe that's not what they're not what they want. And that would be that would bum me out because I do like some of the legitimacy that it that comes with people saying yes, you're good enough to be part of this. But in the end, like yes, I. I did approach it. I've written a couple of reviews since then, and I've tried to make sure that they're as good as they can be, but they're also me. I'm not going to stop writing the way I write, and I'm not going to stop approaching movies the way I approach them, but there's probably, I I can probably do a better version of what I already do. So Mm -hmm. I'm trying to take this as a learning experience, but also not be... uh, overly discouraged by it and honestly that encounter with jimmy is what keeps me from being discouraged and just turning it into a learning experience would you say that it's almost as if the online film critic society threw a symbol at your head and you didn't give up the next day you you practiced exactly look at you you're a experienced podcaster already you're transitioning us into today's film which is of course leave now whiplash yes you've done your job so if uh if you could actually i know we're recording in your house but if you could just you know, lock yourself in your room. I'll, I'll continue. So whiplash, here we are. Uh, thank you everybody for indulging me in that story. We are now going to talk about a very intense film that many people considered one of the best movies, if not the best movie of last year. I don't believe it made my top 10. I think it just, I think it was like number 12 or something like that, but I don't even, I don't have it in front of me. So it might actually have made my top 10, but I don't think so. Um, so I'll give a little bit of background. I knew nothing about the film for a long time. And then I saw a trailer for it and it wasn't really getting a lot of buzz by the time I saw the trailer. I've been a JK Simmons fan since 1998, 99. Um, when I saw him in a show called Oz, Hmm. when he played white supremacist Vern Schillinger. Since then, he, of course, was J. Jonah Jameson. He's been in various uh, Jason Reitman films. Mm-hmm. And he's just kind of become one of those guys that you enjoy seeing on screen. So when I saw the trailer, I thought, ah, there's the white supremacist. Like, he, the character isn't that. But, like, a lot of the same intensity and just the terror that he causes in other people. Hmm. And yet still rem- is still able to be incredibly charismatic. Um that was what I saw in Oz, that this guy, it's like, he's a white supremacist and a murderer and you hate him and yet you can't stop watching him. Sure. It, it was astounding. Um, and I felt like he had, ne- he had not done anything to that degree of intensity since. And then when I saw that trailer, I thought like, oh, it's nice to have him back. 
Um, and so I was really excited for the film, and then I finally got to see it. Um, and I had heard some some best supporting actor buzz for J.K. Simmons. I was super excited because he seemed like one of those character actors that would never really be in contention for Oscars, much less uh, a front runner. So I was just very excited to see the film, and then I finally got to see it with a friend in Chicago, and I ne- I didn't I wouldn't say I necessarily loved the movie. Like some people flipped out, said it was like you know again one of the best movies of last year. Um, I think more than anything, I mean, I, I was fascinated by some of the themes. I was fascinated by the performances. Um, but I think more than anything, I was just astounded that this was the guy's first feature. Right. Um, and it's so amazing. And then the, it went on to be nominated for Best Picture. Can you imagine your first film sure. being nominated for Best Picture? And then actually getting, it won three Oscars. Like, that's not bad for... for what was it? It was uh, obviously supporting actor. Supporting actor, editing. Of course. Which is no small thing. And then uh, sound mixing, which mm. makes sense for, you know, any film about music and yeah. that sort of thing. Um, so it was, uh, I was excited for Damien Chazelle. I'm, and, and I was excited to see the film. And for the most part, I was very, very happy with it. I have a couple picky points here and there from a script standpoint. But, but yeah, I was very, uh, I was very happy with it. What were your expectations and what was your reaction to the film? Well, my expectation was actually that I would not like it because okay. when I saw the trailer, uh, it seemed like a lot of yelling. And it seemed like it would just be putting me into an environment of constant tension. Yeah. And like, why do you want to go to a movie for that? You kind of want to escape and all this kind of stuff. So, um, but of course, I and I didn't actually see it at the theater. I didn't see it until Arby and I queued it up on uh, Voodoo or something and yeah. uh, and watched it like eight months ago and loved it. Absolutely <laughs> loved it because it's such a powerful movie in terms of the way it's it's made. It's just a very forceful movie. It has a force of energy, and you can't stop watching it. Um, Arby and I had a really uh, awesome conversation afterwards about, and we'll get into this later, obviously, but about the kind of uh, the actual message of the movie versus how it makes you feel at the end, which are two different yeah. things, I think. Um, and then the second time I saw it was when a, when a couple of friends of mine who are mu- musicians came into town, uh, my friends Josh and Mary, married couple, and they've both lived a version at least of this experience. Hmm. And I said, you got to see this movie if you've had any, any kind of like conservatory experience at all. And they both have, uh, both got um, their doctorates in music at UCLA, but had studied elsewhere as well. And we watched the movie here in the living room and the tension that I, I thought that it would just be me showing the movie, but I was so wrapped up in the movie again. And next to me down the couch for me, you know, were Josh and Mary who were just echoing how true the movie was in terms of the conservatory experience and how mm-hmm. absolutely tense it always is and the level of competition that it, that it always is. And so watching the movie again with two people who had experienced this um, just really deepened the experience uh, of the movie. And it, it is a lot of yelling. It is very tense. Um, and it does put you in that for, you know, about, what is it, two hours? Yeah. But it's it doesn't feel... Well, I almost said it doesn't make it doesn't really make you feel the same tension, but it does. There's something, and we could talk about this because I don't know the answer, but there's something about the way the movie is made, or maybe the style of music that he's incorporated. Um, it's all jazz, so it, it feels um, highly energized all the time. The, yeah. the music itself does, then the editing does, and then the, because the performances are at such a high pitch, almost throughout the entire movie, you do sit in your living room feeling not as tense as the characters, but a very, uh, uh, just very tense. 
And the movie works that way. And it worked the first time. I didn't want to see it, but I saw it, liked it the first time, liked it better the second time. And uh, it's a great movie. Yeah, I... Again, like, I just... I, I don't remember if it's in my top ten. I guess I should have uh, taken the time to, to look that up. But um, I respect so much about it, and it's directed with such a sure hand. Like, you have a, such a strong sense of... I almost feel like it should have been nominated for cinematography because of the way it uses lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, uh, the rehearsal space that these characters inhabit. You know, it's dimly lit, uh, and it just seems... It seems so intimate. And it seems like a place, it almost, almost like a library. It seems like mm-hmm. a place where you should speak very quietly, but you have somebody just just going after people all the time. Yeah. And so, yeah, I love the visual quality of it. I love uh, the performances. Um, I guess now is as good a time as any to get into maybe some of the stuff I don't like about it. Get it out of the way. Get it out of the way, and then we'll talk more about the stuff that I do like. Um, there are certain plot elements um that i feel like here's the thing i'm astounded this is the guy's first film i'm not astounded it's his first script Hmm. um there are moments that feel like a first script um and maybe it's not his first script but it definitely feels like a younger person who is not seasoned in screenwriting like for example everything having to do with the car accident i hated that it feels like something out of a different movie. It feels like a heightened melodramatic thing that doesn't belong in like, this mm-hmm. is a movie that, that purports to take place in our reality. And I understand they're trying to up the stakes and they're trying to show the, the main character's commitment to what he's doing, but I didn't buy it. It seemed outlandish and I, I didn't like, like that moment really stand, stands out. And because it leads up to a climactic moment in the film, it's hard for me to put to the side. Yeah, the car accident is the only major thing in the movie that I don't like. Yeah. Even the second time when I was expecting it to come, I was like, that, and I was looking for a way that maybe it works better. You know, the second time you're trying yeah. to be forgiving. And uh, no, it, I think that it's a mistake that that moment is in there. Yeah. There's got to be, you know, there's got to be other ways to get where you need to get emotionally. He was already there. That's the point. Yeah, I guess that's true. You didn't need stakes raised in a moment when he's already late. Yeah. And everything is on the line for him in this exact moment. And the car wreck just feels extraneous. Yeah. Like it's, when you think about it, so much of this film is emotional Mm -hmm. that to have, and, and I feel like so many of the beats are right, are correct. And I believe them and they feel earned that when you have something like that, which is outside of the characters and it's something as extreme as a car accident and you're actually seeing blood. It just feels like it belongs in a, It's from a different movie. Not only does it feel like it's from a different movie, but um, I would forgive it more if it played out as if it played more into the end of the movie somehow. But yeah. It's literally just for that moment. Yeah. In this moment, let's make it feel even more tense or intense. Um, another obstacle for him to get from here to there. Um, but once it's done and he's, I, I guess maybe he has a, like a broken hand or something when he's trying to play, but yeah, I but think that's, so. that's even inconsequential given the, the level of intensity and what he has to accomplish in that moment. Yeah. Already it feels uh, a, a bit much and it, 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 it does just simply doesn't play out into anything that matters one way or the other. 
after it actually happens. It reminds me, and this is a this is probably the last comparison I'm going to make to the recent Christian film War Room. Um, although there is a lot of similar language, um, I'm being sarcastic. Uh, there's a scene in War Room, and I think we talked about it, uh, Josh and I, where the main characters are walking along, and then like a a, a, a mugger comes up and threatens them, and then uh, a woman, basically one of the potential victims. Uh, re- like rebukes him in the name of Christ and, and he like feels shamed and walks away, you know, the way a, a mugging would never happen. Um, but that's fine. I understand you're trying to talk about miracles and the power of God. That's fine. Except afterwards, it's as though their lives were never in danger. And it, it just feels like, okay, the writer needs to do something extreme to illustrate his, his point and his theme. And that's what this feels like. It feels mm-hmm. like something extreme that comes way more from the writer than from the reality that he's created. Mm-hmm. Um, and the actors do as good a job as they can, and it's and the sequence itself is handled very oh, well. Sure. I just didn't like that beat. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my first problem. And it's a big one. Like, that's a big plot element. My second one is more of a question. I don't even know if it is a problem. I don't know if, if, if I should have this problem. Is there too much yelling? Is Fletcher too big? This stuff he says is so extreme. Is that... It gets almost to the point of being cartoonish. If they had scaled him back, by all means, still have him yell. Still have him swear at people. You know, that scene where he's trying to figure out who's out of tune is great. You know, and he's still being abusive, but you also see him, uh, he's also holding back a little bit because he's trying to get to something as opposed, like, it's more of a, there's more like, it's more shark-like. There's a laser-like focus as to, as, as opposed to just one big explosion after another. Uh, I don't necessarily think that's J.K. Simmons' fault. I think he's doing what the director told him to do. But the question is, um, when you have that much language... And the, the amount doesn't bother me, except that you start to become desensitized to it, and it's and it. I feel like I started to lose some of my um, some of my reaction to it. Which maybe that's how the students are, but I feel like they're always on edge, and I stopped being on edge at one point around Fletcher hmm. because he was just doing this all the time. And you, after a while, you just start to feel like, oh, this is just a parlor trick he does to get a reaction out of people. Uh, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like, it just seems like they go to that too often and too big. I do, but I, I do know what you mean. But I feel, I think I probably have the same affinity for uh, J.K. Simmons' performance in the movie that uh, Damien Chazelle must have had in the editing room. Oh, sure. Because you're sitting there and you're watching him be as horrible as he is. Yeah. And it, it would be impossible for me to cut any of what's left in the movie. I'm like, because... I would never want to be in that position, you know, to, yeah. uh, that the drummer, the, um, what's his name, uh, Andrew? Yeah. Um, that Andrew was. <coughs> but watching him squirm and watching him squirm under such, you know, beratement uh, is fun. Let's face it. I mean, let's be honest. It's, it's entertaining to, to watch yeah. somebody be that intensely horrible to somebody. Um, and because it's J.K. Simmons, he, there, he does bring a level of... Um, 
watchability to it that if it was yeah. some other actor that I didn't like, I would definitely think that it was way too much. Yeah. Um, but he's a he's a fun actor to watch. He does it so well that you I don't I didn't mind even even watching it the second time. Um, I didn't go oh this. I hope they're not getting bored, you know, down the couch, you know, yeah. at this, at this, uh, you know, all this language and stuff. But uh, no, it, in fact, it's it's entertaining thoroughly all the way from beginning to end, both times that I is saw it. Is it too entertaining? I get maybe that's my concern. Is you grow accustomed to it, and then and the character is also quite funny. As you know, yep. he he also mm-hmm. has like these little one liners. No, he's funny in his in his profanity and his profaneness. Yeah. He is funny, and in doing so, does that. You know, because sometimes we in the audience are chuckling at that. And do does that release the tension too much? Does this become too much fun to watch to the point where I'm not as stressed as maybe I should be? I don't know. I, I think that has to... The question then becomes, what kind of movie do you think Damien Chazelle was trying to make? And was he trying to make a movie where you are in your seat in the theater wishing that you could just leave? But you know you paid $17, so you stay. Or is he making a movie that definitely portrays the kind of character that you never want to be your professor? Sure. But in a way that you will stay in your chair or in your seat, and you will kind of enjoy it. I, th- I, think, I think another part of the answer is you kind of know in some form or fashion this guy must get his comeuppance at some point. And so as, as nasty as he want, wants to be yeah. now that's okay with me because it's J.K. Simmons and it's fun to watch. Yeah. But at some point, he's definitely going to get his come up, comeuppance. Um, the other side of that coin is that I don't know that he ever really does. He does a little bit. I mean, he does... He gets you know, fired. Spoilers, everybody. Yeah, he, he gets... He loses his job. And his job is clearly what... Like, he he wants that job. Like, he, he has a goal for his life. Mm-hmm. And the job... And as a teacher, th- he... That is the pretty much the only way he can really achieve that um, is having people that are sort of at his mercy so that he can try to mold them as much as he can. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a, a certain degree of comeuppance there. But at the same time, that ending scene, which is wonderfully choreographed, um, that ending scene also kind of vindicates him i don't know if i'd say it vindicates him he gets his comeuppance and then he gets what he was looking for yep this is the crux of of any further conversation we have about yeah. the movie because at the end of the movie uh the, because of the music that they're playing because of yeah. the energy of the filmmaking itself you are into this moment it's like everyone says this it feels like you're watching like a sports movie like rocky like yeah. get up get up get up um and he does and he wins yeah meaning andrew does but so does Fletcher. Yeah. Uh, Fletcher wins by virtue of the fact that he has found his Charlie Parker. Yeah. He's found someone who can stand up on his own with the talent that he, Fletcher, has nurtured yeah. in Andrew. Nurtured is... An nurtured. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not the right word. Extracted um, surgically. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, ripped from. Yeah. Uh, mind. Let's say mine. Mine, that's good. Because mining good is a violent thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, <laughs> but he, he, does, he does win... There's always two levels in a good movie, and that's the the level of the inside of the movie and what's happening to those characters, and then what we can perceive sta- us standing outside of the movie. The first, uh, he does win because he does find his Charlie Parker, yeah. Uh, and Andrew does win because he's proven to this guy that he can do what he's always said that he could do. Yeah. We know. I well, believe- and you know what? I would say Andrew wins because 
He's proving it to this guy, but the guy isn't really that important in the moment. Andrew is proving it to himself. Um, but what's he proving? He, 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 that he's that he is good enough, and that he doesn't necessarily need. I don't know. It's it's almost as though after a certain point, it's in defiance of Fletcher and approving to Fletcher. But I think after a while, even Fletcher kind of goes away, and Andrew's completely by himself. I, like, I disagree. I mean, there, so? are, there are definitely moments in that in that uh, climax where he yeah. is alone, but that all of those moments happen before. And there's a moment where Fletcher kind of leans in, and he raises his hand and he kind of pulls his hand up and with the other hand he's saying like give me more give me more and so at that moment uh andrew goes from i have overcome this guy yeah i have proven myself not only to this guy to myself to this audience to my dad who's watching off stage yeah but then he's he he's being dictated to again but i wonder if it's you know what here's here's maybe how i see it he is now connected with Fletcher in a way that the two never would have thought. But I don't think he ne- absolutely needs Fletcher anymore. They will now continue to work together way more as equals than teacher and student. Um, like, I-, I wouldn't be surprised if... I feel like they're probably going to continue to work together, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't be surprised if Fletcher does not raise his voice at him ever again. Well, here we come back to the, the two levels that I talked about. It's yeah. like in, inside the movie, I think you're absolutely right. These guys are going to continue to work together or at least work apart but have mutual respect for each other. Yeah. But we know from everything that happened, how they got to this point, and then the looks in their eyes and the filmmaking itself tells us that it's not just one equal looking at another equal uh, and sharing praise for each other. It's no. what we probably would call codependency sure because we have two people who are on this spectrum of uh you know uh masochism you know musical masochism or yeah. whatever you want to call it and they're at the extreme both of them yeah both of them start there I and mean, we, we like to put andrew as like the good guy and fletcher's the bad guy but let's be honest andrew was not a likable guy from the very beginning of the movie yeah um, he was doing things that we guys we like in romantic comedies do, like go yeah. up to the girl at the popcorn stand and say, would you go out with me and be all vulnerable and stuff? But really, we don't like him. We don't like, maybe we don't like the actor. I don't know. Maybe I don't like the actor. But I think the movie kind of doesn't want us to like either one of these guys. But they're on sort of different places on that spectrum. By the end of the movie, they've both moved to the same place. They've he, Andrew's ditched his girlfriend for the yeah. future. He's kind of ditched his father he's ditched his whole family well. by yeah. being you know that wonderful scene at the family at, yeah. at the dinner table i don't care for that scene either actually i like that scene i feel like the family is uh overwritten um as well they only got part- that one scene <laughs> i know but that's the thing is like i feel like they're written in a way that's just like they're the essence of clueless as opposed to, like mm. you can just have them be generally clueless it's fine um but anyway that's it but that's everything a in this movie is heightened and to good effect i believe including that scene i guess that's true but it's i guess when the when the film works, I believe that it's possible, and like I don't feel like it's t- exploring an emotional truth. I think it's exploring an actual truth, yeah. and this is a world that could actually exist. And so, when moments like the car accident happen, when Fletcher is going parti- is particularly uh, ornate in his language, uh, in a way that maybe somebody wouldn't be in that particular. Like he's he's quick in a way that's just like this is almost impossible to be yeah. this quick and this mad at the same time. Um, and then the way that the, the family interacts, uh, 
where they're, they're getting to the heart of things and they're playing the essence of things more than the, the thing itself. And because in other moments, like the way he interacts with his dad, that feels very naturalistic mm-hmm. and very real and very believable. Um, you know, those moments, I don't know. It's it, those moments feel like a, like a, fr- sometimes a frustrating tonal shift into a, in my opinion, a lesser movie. Um, but that might just be me. In fact, it, I, it would appear it is, uh, almost mm. everyone I know agrees about that car accident thing, but, um, or I haven't really talked about the movie much with people. So that, that's good to know that I wasn't just being a, you know, pretentious screenwriter guy. I, I mean, but that's the thing I think I, well, maybe it's my pretentious critic and screenwriter friends and myself hmm. that have a problem with that because you realize that's not necessary. But I feel like something as extreme as that your average audience member who obviously we're speaking down uh, about, um, your average, average audience member is like, okay, this is a very jarring thing and, and yeah. oh my gosh, and he's still going to do it. So in a broad sense, I feel like it works and maybe that's hang on now. Maybe that's the thing is maybe I'm thinking about the film uh, wrong. I'm thinking about it as a first film that stars Miles Teller and J.K. Simmons, neither of which Miles Teller has become a leading man. He's become something of a name. Uh, J.K. Simmons, certainly as a function of this, is, uh, I think, a much more viable leading Mm -hmm. man. But um, but I was thinking more of it as like as a, a small indie film. But now that, but I think the stuff that we're talking about, or the stuff that that we have problems with, or that I have problems with, that's basically a mainstream sensibility coming into this film, and so maybe it's a lot more mainstream in its nature than I'm approaching it as. Do you know what I mean? I do exactly know what you mean. Um, it's easy to uh, walk into a theater expecting a movie from a first-time filmmaker that you've never heard of. Yeah, a couple of guys that aren't necessarily. A list, whatever yeah. you want to call, it. Um, and be blown away by how good it is, and it seems better, yeah. even than it is because of where you thought it was going to be. Yeah, um, when you walked in, this definitely has that, and it definitely has, like you said, a couple of broad strokes that are very um, commercial, yeah. you know, like that. And I feel like that. Um, I, I I think I'm in agreement with you that it, that there's a that that the things that we're that we're saying are problems that we have with the movie aren't actually problems with the movie they're problems with with where we're coming from um, oh i think there's still problems with the movie i, f- I feel like again i, I don't still think the f- family scene is a problem personally uh that i'm willing to put down to my own personal expectations of the film i think anybody i think a very solid argument can be made that that car accident is unnecessary and a bit over the top mm-hmm. uh as a plot point um because the way I said, as I said, like, it seems like something out of a lesser movie. And maybe I should, re- I should rephrase that. It seems like something out of a more conventional movie. And I don't mm. think Whiplash is a conventional movie. Not at all. But every once in a while, it will interact with that. Maybe because Damien Chazelle was trying to make a, a really, really great, engaging movie for a, larger, for a larger audience. You know, Whiplash is a movie that, though it is incredibly intense, I feel like, you know, if people can get past language and stuff like that i feel like it is as you said it's an entertaining movie and it's an engaging movie and i think people i think anybody could walk into whiplash and and feel and definitely feel like they've had an experience and feel engaged by the characters and and the editing and just feel completely engrossed in what they've seen 
uh, as opposed to in the in the way of like one of the one of the better mainstream films, mm-hmm. as opposed to something like say Birdman, mm-hmm. which has which has uh, you know bigger name stars, but has such that very much has an indie sensibility to the point that I think your your average audience member, and I don't even mean to speak down about them at this point. I mean like somebody who's just going to go see a movie there are things that they might find engaging and other things that they're just like, I don't like this. I don't get it. And I don't understand why they're making the movie like this. Whereas I think most people, I, I genuinely feel like as strange as it may sound, whiplash is something of a crowd pleaser. Um, it may, he may also exhaust them and drain them. But I, I feel like, uh, this conversation has actually been very helpful for me as far as recontextualizing how I approach whiplash. Hmm. Um, and I think I'm much more willing to forgive the tone of the J.K. Simmons character, the tone of that family scene, if I'm looking at it as this is a film with mainstream appeal that is just really great, mm-hmm. you know, um, as as a little niche uh, indie film, I give it like a B plus. As a mainstream film, I give it a solid A, mm. you know. Um, and I realize that I my, I might be splitting hairs a little bit, and and I feel like I, I'm speaking in kind of larger strange concepts but do you do you know like you know what i mean when i'm saying all this stuff right? i do okay um yeah so i completely derailed us because we no, were no, talking about i think about, it's i think it's part of the show i assume would be like helping other helping you yeah. you helping me to uh to better understand why we like a movie or why we don't like a movie and everything you just said is is you said you're recontextualizing your approach to whiplash yeah. that's a function of your show i believe and now that I've, now that I've said it, I'm intrigued to watch it again, mm-hmm. um, and maybe be more forgiving of it, or not even more forgiving, but just looking at it through a different lens. I just pictured you standing up and cheering during the car wreck scene the second time you said absolutely it. like this is the best story beat that ever could be. Um, but yeah, uh, but it's can I say something? Sure. Can can I say something? It's like so timid. I, Sorry, I prefer if you say sir, but that's sir, fine. Go um, on. Uh, I. You said something about the uh, the crowd pleasing. You you call it crowd pleaser, a crowd pleaser. And I'm reluctant to say that because I feel like in certain it's certainly in, not- in our circles that's almost viewed as like a bad thing. Yeah. Um. But like a movie wanting to actually engage and 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 have its audience enjoy what they're seeing. Yeah. That's not a crime. Not at by all. any stretch. But I'm that's sorry. Any go filmmaker on. wants to do that. Um, well, maybe not all. Of them. It's just funny from. Uh, I think from both of our perspectives and maybe a lot of the people that listen to the show's perspective to call it a crowd pleaser when all, and it, it does feel like a crowd pleaser on the surface and we've been talking about it almost on the surface, but mm-hmm. underneath it is this, this seething neurosis of, of, oh, yeah. of need. Like both of these guys need this thing so bad that they will stop at nothing. And that's psychosis. That is psychosis. And, yeah. uh, and the end of the movie, while it feels triumphant, and while you're enjoying it, I, I, I'm coming back to a point we made earlier, but I, I'm so fascinated by the fact that the movie feels so good, yeah. but actually is terrible. Because of the codependency, obvious in those quick cutaways, or close-ups of their eyes, as they're looking at each other in those final moments of that solo. And Fletcher is leading Andrew, and Andrew is perfectly in time with Fletcher, finally. Yeah. And all these things are... This is Rocky standing up finally yeah. and winning. Um, 
but it's not because they're both they're both standing up into a lifetime of codependency. Yeah, it's one of the things that I do like is that if let's say this is the crowd pleasing movie that I'm talking about, I genuinely feel like anybody could walk in and feel engaged by this movie, but I also think they'll be extremely challenged by it. I think they'll walk out confused about how they feel and I think they'll be consciously aware of it. I think they will know the conflict that they're feeling. I think they would know that like, oh, he finally was able to prove himself to Fletcher or whatever, whatever they might think the triumph is. But I think they would also recognize like, yeah, but is that a man you want on your side? Exactly. Is that a mentality you want to live with? Look at what it, look at what Fletcher did. All of his work he, equals a deal with the devil, essentially. Yeah. You know, but at the same time, but also, as you said, like Andrew, you know, forsook, forsake, forsaken. I don't know. He uh, he left his his potential girlfriend behind because it's just like I've got other things to do. You are not you, a human being, are not a priority Speed to me. Um, and I think people would walk away being like, "Good for him," but wait, maybe it isn't good for him. Um, and I think that's why an earlier story beat where Fletcher finds out about a previous student he had that he was very proud of, mm-hmm. and that this person suffered like a nervous breakdown and kills themselves. Uh, and just hit, you know, he feels genuine mourning over that. But what's interesting, I don't think so. I think it's there, but I don't think he learns anything from it. Like he does seem to genuinely be upset that this person that maybe he either cared about or saw something in is now gone. And maybe he views it as like, what a waste of talent. Um, but it, in a way it's, Oh, I don't know. I might be reading stuff into it, but it it could almost be seen as, I guess he didn't have it. Like, I totally. guess uh, it's like, I thought he had it and he thought he had Charlie Parker. And then he broke him accidentally, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. It's like, Oh, I guess I got to keep looking, maybe even yeah. try a little harder. Yeah. You know, I think if there's, if there's anything to be believed from Fletcher in this movie, it's in that really great bar scene mm-hmm. after he's been fired. And uh, they're sitting across the table from each other, and Fletcher says, you know what? No one understood what I was trying to do at that school. Yeah. I was trying to push people to be better than they could have possibly thought they could be. Yeah. And I pushed them. And then you, if you take that thought, and then you reflect back on what he said about his former student who killed himself, yeah. it's like there's, it's almost like there's no remorse in, in his true goal as stated in that bar scene well you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs you know that's his whole point of view in life and it's it's sad but i almost don't there's part of me that doesn't that feels like that fletcher when he's telling the story to the students in the conservatory about the student and he's crying no that ultimately it felt it felt real in the moment but ultimately it felt like just part of his grander manipulation because he knows by that point, I feel like he knows by that point that he's kind of got him terrified to a certain point of him. Mm-hmm. And they want to do well for him because they're terrified of him. But he's also human. And he also really just wants someone to be good enough for him to cry over at some point. And that will motivate them too. And he, I think he really does want to find the next Charlie Parker. Sure. And he will do anything he can to find that Charlie Parker, even feign tears in front of his conservatory class over this loss. Well, it's clear, as he says, you know, when when you see him in the bar later and he details, 
his whole strategy, it's clear that every time he sta- steps in front of his students, there's a performance element there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that might actually be playing up a reaction that he might actually have, but playing it up. But before that, he does get word of it when he's just in his office. And I think, I think Andrew is there at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think in that moment, you get a real reaction. It just like he's overwhelmed, like he's not translating it into tears. He's not translating it into frustration. It's more just the general confusion that a person feels when they lose somebody. And I feel like that's a genuine reaction. I think mm-hmm. he is genuinely taken aback and and probably sad about it. Um, but yeah, an argument could be made that everything he does, everything he says in that room is meant to manipulate his students. And if he's crying in front of them, maybe. Into becoming the next Charlie Parker. I think right. we can't not say that enough because yes. he is so dead set on being the person who finds and molds the next Charlie Parker. Or yeah. I think the other example I gave is Louis, Louis Armstrong at some point in the movie. So that he's willing to do all these things to break kids in order to find that person. He doesn't care yeah. who he breaks in half as yeah. long as that one that almost breaks in half but doesn't quite is there and he finds that person. You know, the the companion film for this uh, is The Paper Chase, which I'm perfectly fine with. But as we talk about this, it occurs to me that maybe we could have gone with another film that also won Best Supporting Actor, which is An Officer and a Gentleman. I've never seen it. Lou Gossett Jr. Mm-hmm. won Best Supporting Actor as a drill sergeant who zeroes in on Richard Gere for a number of reasons, but like... You know, he's doing his standard drill sergeant thing, but then he sees this one guy and he sees, A, that he needs to be specifically broken, but I think he also sees something in him that's like, if we can just shape this guy, I think we can do something with him. Um, But I haven't seen the film in a long time, and so I I didn't want to talk about that. But, I mean, when you think about it, like, J.K. Simmons, his character is doing really nothing different than what a drill sergeant is doing. Yeah, so many people have compared the movie to, or at least in tone, to the first half an hour of Full Metal Jacket. Sure. Um, the yelling, the berating, trying to get these guys to, you know, to be better than they ever thought they could be. Yeah. It's the same thing. And it's also very entertaining to watch. Yeah. Darker, somehow. It's darker in Full Metal Jacket. Maybe because it's military and it's war and Kubrick. But well, and also I don't think, I don't think uh, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, I think that's, uh, I think that's Arlie Ermey's character's name. Um I don't think he cares about any one of these people. I don't think he cares about them living up to their potential. That's true. I think he is doing his job. And I think, so there's a cold, there, there's no wider goal except this is my job and I'm going to break these people and that's the end of it. Mm. Um, whereas I think there is, there's an ideology behind what Fletcher is doing and it's an ideology I think everybody can understand at its core. And so I think that's what makes Full Metal Jacket even darker is this mm. guy is hurting is abusing these uh cadets um but feeling not really feeling personally invested in it either like he just he has a job to do and it's a job that he sees as important and that that's the end of it right whereas fletcher almost any of us could say well absolutely it's like i don't like the method he goes about it but we can all understand the goal you Um, know something occurs to me i hadn't thought of this before but um i've actually heard uh others talk about certain aspects of this but there's at the end of the movie, the third act is basically from the bar scene on. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that last scene's a lot longer, and I say this in a good way, a lot longer than I ever thought it would be. The the final yeah. uh, drum solo, et cetera. Yeah. yeah um, and you, you can look back at the movie once you've seen it and kind of 
piece together what you think Fletcher might be thinking at any point. And he's telling us the story again of Charlie Parker getting the the symbol thrown at him and all this yeah. stuff, and uh, asks Andrew if he wants to be the drummer at the show that then, think about this, at the show that he then uh, pulls a, a switcheroo yeah. on the drummer, the core of the band, of the, of the beat, of, yeah. of the orchestra. Which um, I also don't necessarily think would happen. I don't think, because well, Fletcher's sort of sabotaging himself No, that but that's, that's exactly part of my point, is that, um, let me back up just a little bit and say, sometimes it's, it's okay to talk about movies in terms of like the things that didn't work, right. um, like the car, the car thing, um, or the family scene, or the fact that Fletcher invites someone and then does a switcheroo in front of an audience. Like, why would he do that? Yeah. Um, the, the other way to look at a movie is to just pretend like everything is like some slice of like actual recorded history mm-hmm. and you're watching it and somebody did do that. There was a car wreck. There's no explaining it. Sure. There's no justification for it in terms of the story, but it happened. So, and how do the characters react to that? Well, when you apply that to why would Fletcher and his grand bid to kind of rise back into the echelon of like teachers or like respected conductors why would he ever bring someone on board just to sabotage him and, and himself in front of all these people he did that so let's think about why he would do that sure why he would do that is because he wants to find the next charlie parker and nothing, it's like unbreakable it's like unbreakable and exactly yeah that's exactly oh partially sorry. partially a joke but also kind of yeah it's it, i think it works it's somebody willing to do very extreme things willing to sabotage an entire orchestra what, and himself. what is the worst thing that he could possibly do to himself yeah. in order to find charlie parker and that is to put himself back to audience but in, tr- in control of this thing in yeah. front of him this music and then the core of that music be completely sabotaged he's sabotaging it don't no one's going to sabotage my band while he sabotages his own band right in the grand pursuit of finding, and he feels like, well, nothing else has worked inside the conservatory. Right. Maybe this will. And yeah, it does. Well, it's <laughs> he kind of wins. It's almost as though he's saying, whether he realizes it or not, I don't know. Um, you know, uh, it's, such not, it's such an interesting idea. It's like, a big question can be perpetually asked in this film. What did Fletcher know and when did he know it? Sure. Um, but anyway, uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But it's almost as though he recognizes... You know, so far I've been pushing people and pushing people to become the ne- to find the next Charlie Parker. But you know what? I haven't really risked anything myself. Hmm. Uh, and like, I certainly I wound up risking my job, but I don't think I knew I was doing that at the time, or, or at least not to this extent. Um, so it's like, yes, maybe I, I am so willing. I'm so committed to this idea. I'm willing to maybe even look bad in front of an audience and in front of these other uh, band members. If it means I get this thing, I'm going to put myself on the line mm-hmm. um, and my own reputation on the line. And, you know, which, which by the way, then I think makes uh, Fletcher definitely a co-lead instead of a supporting because that's an arc. It's a bizarre. I, I always wonder when someone gets a supporting actor nom- or actress nomination, yeah. why that is. Like, for instance, John Travolta. Versus Samuel Jackson in, in Pulp Fiction? Yeah. Like, why? It well, doesn't make I th- any sense. Yeah, I mean, Samuel Jackson has the arc. If yeah. you want to look in, in strictly arc totally. versus not, mm-hmm. Samuel Jackson has an arc. John Travolta really doesn't. But uh, from a screen time standpoint, Is it just v- John virtue Travolta. of the fact that everyone knows who, at that point, knew who John Travolta was, but not really who Sam Jackson was? Maybe. That's so unfair. It's just and like, it, I, I never understood that. I mean, that Denzel point. Washington 
won Best Actor for Training Day. Ethan Hawke was nominated for supporting, even though Ethan Hawke has the arc and has way more screen time. That's such a great example. That's that's it, that travesty. to me is like the the essence yeah. of why the Academy is dumb. Because, <laughs> so or, but it's not even the Academy. The studio figured of this course. is the best way to go. It's time for Denzel to get his lead, right? Um, and let's uh, let's get a little something for Ethan Hawke why in there not? as well. He was in the movie too. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, why is uh, Jamie Foxx nominated for supporting for Collateral? He's the lead. That's... But, of course, he's also going to win lead for Ray in that same year. We mm. can't have him competing with himself, so let's make... Like, it's just... It's so arbitrary, and it's such... It so boils down to studio calculation. Mm. Like, in a lead category, J.K. Simmons, I think he has a good shot, but he might not win. Supporting, he'll definitely win. Wow. Because it's a long... Because he's the latest in a long line of tough instructors uh-huh. that will win best supporting actor. I already mentioned Lou Gossett Jr. The companion film, John Hausman wins it. Yes. Like it's not an unusual, it's not unheard of. Burgess Meredith nominated for, uh, for Rocky losing out to, I believe Jason Robards for all the president's men who is a tough, uh, no nonsense, uh, editor who will like really put the, put the screws to his reporters to get what he needs. What about, it's funny that I was looking, I was just naming other movies that are kind of similar thematically in mm-hmm. terms of the teacher-student, yeah. and two movies that we've talked about, you and I, on this show, Black Swan sure. and The Master, just oh, yeah. episodes ago. Um, same deal. I don't know about nominations and whatnot, but there's there's this through line of uh, like evil teachers, or not evil, that's, that's a wrong way to put it, but um, extremely uh, oppressive and manipulative teachers. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the stuff of a supporting performance, yeah. but... In you know, in the paper chase, it's absolutely a supporting character. In Officer and a Gentleman, it's a supporting character. But this one, an argument can be made if we are looking at the character the way we've been talking about—that he he gets to a point where he realizes I need to now put something on the line. I'm willing to sabotage myself, which is a thing that he never would have done before. Uh, I think before his standing, what was what was. It was as far as goals, his reputation and his band's reputation for excellence is probably as important as his goal to find the next Charlie Parker. Um, And over the course of the film, one becomes more important than the other because he's sort of been brought down by Mm -hmm. by losing his job. So, you know, now that we talk about it, I think there's definitely an arc there. And so I definitely think that. Yeah. And I think he's I think he's definitely a lead. Yeah. Another uh, subtler version of him laying himself on the line. Uh, is that bar scene, if I can evoke that scene yeah. again, because for the first hour and 15 minutes, whatever point in the movie that is, that the bar scene takes place, uh, you there has been no humanity that you can really rely on yeah. as believable, as true. Right. Maybe the moment you, where he gets in the, the phone In call, the office, I think. Maybe. Um, but in hindsight, even. But in hindsight, also in that bar scene, he is he's becoming someone to Andrew that he's never... Not only has he never been, but he would never think to be yeah. that way too. But he's kind of been uh, humbled by yeah. being fired. He's now at a, a doing like happy hour or whatever it is at this bar. Um, so he's been kind of laid low. But still, a guy like that, to humble himself, so to speak, into being human enough to like relate some actual things that he really thinks about what he, his role was at the school and just kind of be human to Andrew for the first time ever... Um, that's also as demonstrative of an arc, if you want to call it that, as the the sacrifice at the end of screwing up in front of the entire audience. Although, 
look at what he's bringing Andrew into, and maybe the best way to do that is to appear human to Andrew. That's what I mean. You know, so like, but I mean that like, it could still be in just another level of manipulation. It's like, that, well, the yelling's not going to work anymore, so now what I'll do is I'll do this. And he, undoubtedly, he's saying true things, mm-hmm. but he's saying them yeah. to his own end. Well, that's my part of my broader point, which is that in hindsight, there's almost no moment that you can look at and go, I think that he was being real here. Yeah. I think even, uh, it's almost like he had a, like a, a grand plan. I'm going to get Andrew back. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to get him back this way. And I think if he walks into my bar, that's the only contingent is like, I hope he walks in my bar at some point because at, yeah. at that point, I'm going to be human to him. I'm going to ask him to be part of my deal. I'm going to give him the wrong music or whatever it was. Yeah. And then watch him slither away and die. Um, and I do he, think the only human moment might be there at the end when he and Andrew are finally making that point. connection. It's a really good point. You know, um, cause he is his, his version of human, which is yeah. satisfied that he's found his man. Yeah. Um, I we keep talking about this, uh, this last scene, which is a brilliant piece of filmmaking. It really is. Like, I feel like there's, you know, the three Oscars that it won, I feel like that last scene might have won all three. Sure. I mean, obviously, Fletcher's good. Uh, uh, Simmons is good throughout. But, like, it's a marvel of editing. It's a marvel of sound mixing. And yeah. it is a marvel of acting. As many emotions that are roiled up inside that 15 minutes, 10 or 15 minutes yeah. on that stage. Um, and some of those feelings are definitely heartbreaking if you think about them in some of the ways that we've been talking about it. But the most heartbreaking aspect of that entire scene is the cutaways to poor Paul Reiser looking through the door. Mm-hmm. The first time I saw the movie, I was like, oh, he's really championing his son. Like He's looking at his son, finally getting to uh, rise to the level that he as a father has always hoped that his child could rise to, yeah. especially given how much hubris Andrew has um, you know, exhibited on his route to that moment, yeah. to his family, to everyone else. Um, but the second time I saw it, I was actually kind of stunned and sickened a little bit by how sad he actually looks. It's a little bit of the old P- Podovkin, was that the old uh, uh, Russian filmmaker from like the 20s that was like experimenting with editing? And, like, oh, the Kuleshov effect. Yeah, is that it? I think so, yeah. Yeah, you put a, a picture of a guy who's just kind of a placid face. Yeah, yeah. Depending on what you put before and after it, that, in, that helps you interpret what that guy's thinking. Am um, I right about that? Is that what that's called? I think so, but I'm not sure. I don't know why Podovkin came to mind. I don't even know who Podovkin is. Um, but at, at any rate, uh, he is... And my second viewing, maybe because I knew more about the movie going in, he seemed heartbroken himself. Like he's looking at he's looking at how we're interpreting it. He's interpreting it that way as well. Oh my gosh, my son should have. I mean, he was hugging him only moments moments before then. Like you're going to be okay, son. You gave it your best shot. This yeah. monster pulled the rug out from under you, but it's okay. You have family. You have me, and that's kind yeah. of the feeling that that you felt like it was going to like end on yeah. was like almost like a family moment. And then it turns when Andrew walks back out. And then when it cuts away to Paul Reiser, dad looking out, it feels very much like, why did you go back out there? Why did, why did you, why are you allowing yourself to get absorbed into this man's world? Why would you ever do that? And it looks heartbroken. I mean, just so sad. I think it's all of the above. Uh, Kuleshov by, effect is by the way, what it is called. So you're right. Um, you were Fletcher to my Andrew. Oh my gosh! Oh, if only if only I allowed swearing on here. Um, 
because then I would, oh, I would really do another There are some year. creative swears in this movie. Oh, Can sure. I say swears like, like a 90-year-old woman? Absolutely. But, or yeah, a nine-year-old so, kid. Yeah, exactly. I'm swears. I really creative on J.K. Simmons' part. Yeah. I was, as I was looking up some of the, the memorable quotes, I was like, man, oh, man. And I think that maybe they're a little bit too written. I think that's what maybe. I was talking about. But again, if the character really is not this angry, if he is, in fact, doing all of this for effect, then, then yeah, he'll probably be able to think on his feet and come up with these very clever insults uh, yeah. because he's not actually mad. He's performing. But anyway, um, I for, oh, yeah, all, all of the above. So, uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's both. I think it is his dad. I think he, he sees just what his son is able to do, maybe for the first time in his life. Like mm. he is able to and probably feels a little bit of pride for that. Like, oh, my gosh, look at what my son is able to do. But also mourning the fact that well, my son certainly doesn't, he has sort of outgrown me, hmm. but also mourning like the world that his son is now willingly going into right. a world that he, and a world that maybe it's like, well, he certainly belongs here because look how great he is, but that's a sad thing. And there's a, there's a line actually, uh, in the paper chase that will address this. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think Paul Reiser is a lot of fun in this movie, uh, fun at times, but just like. You know, you see the scenes with Miles Teller and Paul Reiser, I think, are really great. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of genuine affection there for. And and one of the things that, that really gets me, like the part that like I cringe at uh, as far as the, the amount of abuse that J.K. Simmons heaps on Andrew is when he starts bringing up Andrew's family. Yes. After having, I guess that was another false human moment, is in the hallway yeah. when he's like, Tell me about your dad. What does your dad do? And what does your mom do? Yeah. And then he, yeah, takes that information and uses it in these bloody moments of yeah. know, ripping him apart. Oof. Like that's, that part is really like, mm-hmm. you know, if somebody did that to me, if somebody was asking about, you know, my, my, parents or my wife or something like that and then i and i told them something a little bit personal um and then that person just turned that around in public and just used that as just like ammunition against and me. then later he says uh in another heated moment it's all heated right um he says you're making your dad look like a, like look like a success story that, yeah wow what a put down to both of us yeah it's just like you've already it's like, we've already established that your dad is a horrible failure and you should not be proud of him at all. Yeah. You should be ashamed of him and you're worse. Yeah. What do you think of that? Yeah. It's just like, wow, that's, there's a lot of layers to how horrible that is. Um, but back to Riser being uh, enjoyable to watch, mm-hmm. uh, part of the enjoyment of watching Paul Riser in this role is he's not funny. I mean, he's, he's not a funny character and he's being a yeah. real person. And I don't know that I've ever seen him in a movie where he wasn't kind of either a sleazeball, obviously, in, in Aliens, but he's yeah. funny to watch because you know he's playing a sleazeball or in sitcoms or whatever but I've never seen him be a real guy and he does it well and kind of yeah and I mean and there are like moments of humor like when they're going to see a movie and uh, and he puts I th- what is it like milk duds in the popcorn or something oh, like that's that right, yeah. and yeah. then Andrew's just like he goes oh I-, I won't eat them he goes what he says I eat around them and he just looks and he says I don't understand you. Yeah. And it's like, it's a fun moment, mm-hmm. but it's like a, it's like a, it's a banter moment with mm-hmm. a father and son and they feel, it feels completely believable. I almost wish those moments were there because then it wouldn't be so heartbreaking when Riser's looking at him at the yeah. end. Um, but it needs to, like, they need to be, you need to understand it. You need to I know. understand like what it's gotta be a good movie rats, <laughs> but it, it would still be a good movie without that. But I feel like you need to have a, an understanding of exactly what Andrew is leaving behind and yeah. what he's willingly sacrificing in mm-hmm. order to do this thing. Um, and obviously it's like, he's going to continue to have a relationship with his family, but it's not 
it, it is clear family is like his his girlfriend or whatever his family is definitely secondary um, i watched uh i i watched like i said i watched this twice and then i was going to watch it again this morning just would be even fresher on my mind and uh found out that i couldn't uh stream it so uh for any amount of money so i i watched a bunch of clips on youtube and that's no way to watch any movie. Right. But um, I didn't watch the whole thing, obviously, but just like key moments that people had put up online. And at the top of one of the, you might also like this clip from something else, was uh, the the scene from uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg movie. Um, Social, Social Network. Network. Um, because I'd been watching the scene where he breaks up with a girlfriend. Mm. And it's very fun um, yeah. and satisfying to go from watching the scene where Teller or Andrew, um, dumps his girlfriend for the worst reason possible. Yeah. And then to go to the scene from Social Network, the opening scene, five minutes of just this incredible dialogue, can I say, from Aaron Sorkin, um, where the girl walks out on him for yeah. being what she calls him. And I, I have no point beyond the fact that that's just two fun scenes to watch together because they're both yeah. about dumping somebody for like the right reason, like walking out on somebody for the right reason because they're being completely idiotic yeah. and immature. Yeah, it's uh, and I guess we can talk about Andrew a little bit, and then we should probably uh, not necessarily wrap up, but at least move on to the companion film. Um, yeah, uh, J.K. Simmons got so much press for this film, and understandably so. Like that character is the movie is made or uh, made or broken by that character, but um, and the actor who plays him. But uh, I do think Miles Teller also does a good job because mm-hmm. you know you uh, did you compare him? No, I think I mentally compared him to uh rocky um I in the, the movie to rocky because a lot of people talk about it as a sports movie right okay yeah and and he does seem and so when you watch rocky you see a guy who you're, you're on his side but he's also in that movie he's kind of a mook and kind of an idiot mm-hmm. and not a not really a good guy certainly at the beginning when he's a an enforcer yeah. uh or a, a debt collector mm-hmm. um he's a nice debt collector though because he doesn't beat the guy up sure but he probably, but he can, and he will the next time, sure. you know. And he probably has beaten people up in the past. Not, no. I know, it's hard to believe. Detour, real quick. Okay. I only found out, uh, I, w- I watched all the Rocky movies because they were all up on Netflix streaming. Okay. So I sat for like a week, and I, well, I didn't sit for a week and watch Rocky movies, but I watched all of them over the course of a week, the first uh, five of them, and including Rocky Balboa, which is the, f- no, six. Yeah. Oh my gosh, six movies. Um, and then all in kind of anticipation of Creed, Creed, which, which I'm actually looking forward I to. I am too, uh, very much so. But I, in reading about the movies on Wikipedia, I didn't know that Rocky's first name is Robert. It's oh, Robert Rocky Balboa. I'm like, anyway. I mean, yeah, obviously his name wouldn't be Rocky, but I guess I never thought about He's it. born Rocky Balboa. <laughs> it's yeah. funny. It's like, yeah, your family, your, your parents have a clear idea of who you're going to be yeah. at the end of that. By the way, a, a detour off a detour. I, I recommend watching all those movies. There's so many clunky moments in every single one of those movies. But I think the first one is almost perfect. It's a great movie. Yeah. Um, it's still clunky in, in parts. Um, but it's it's uh, endearingly clunky, whereas yeah. it gets just obnoxiously clunky by yeah. three or by four, definitely. One of the things that I that I'm excited about with Creed, because mm-hmm. in the tra- did you see the trailer? Uh, I love it. It's a great it trailer. looks great. I'm yeah. I'm super excited about it. And I think it's a brilliant idea to move Rocky to a supporting role. But you know when you when Adonis Creed is talking about like you know my I lost my dad to the sport. It's like yeah, how did you lose your dad? Oh right, he was beaten to death by a programmed Russian boxer. Yes, that's how like 
as much as Rocky Balboa and now Creed are trying to embrace the 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 gritty reality of the mm-hmm. first film, let's not forget just how horrible and ridiculous these movies got. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, we should probably move on. No, no, no. Can I say that the second movie is actually the worst movie? As clunky and weird, and as full of like back-to-back mon- musical montages as number four is mm-hmm. the Rocky, the uh, the Russian one. Uh, the second one is the worst because it's it's the most it it is most clearly trying to replicate everything that went right with the first one. Sure, except Almost now he beat. wins. Except now he triumphantly wins. There's no draw, or whatever. Yeah. Um, but there's so the movies as a whole, Rocky, the world, the universe is just so endearing yeah. and good. I loved living in that world for like a week. As bad as some of those moments were, I just loved it. I recommend it. I don't know. That's a lot of time to spend with Burt Young. Well, yeah, <laughs> and he's still by by five or six. He's still working in that that stinking meat packing plant or whatever. Well, there's not a whole lot that Polly can do. <laughs> he's not got a wide <laughs> skill set, <laughs> Polly. Um, but the reason that I that I bring it up is because uh, sorry about that. No, it's fine. Um, I do feel like uh, Miles Teller. There is a quality to him that reminds me of not necessarily Sylvester Stallone, but like the care there's a, I guess there's a quality to Andrew that reminds me of Rocky and that so much about him seems like he should be like a standard nice guy and that you're on board with him and Mm -hmm. that he can do no wrong, but he is flawed and he makes mistakes and his priorities are a little bit out of whack. And I don't necessarily think uh, Rockies are, but you know, in both cases, what, what would be the obvious choice is not the one they go with. And and I think Miles Teller does a really good job of making Andrew sympathetic, but not necessarily likable. Um, you know, when you've got somebody yelling two inches from your face, it's yeah. hard not to sympathize with the person being yelled at. Right. Um, but when you see the choice he makes as far as romance, when you see just the the attitude that he has towards his fellow musicians, you see the like he could he, he's kind of cut from the same cloth as Fletcher. He doesn't know it yet, and we don't know it yet. But you see that there's a cutthroat quality to him as well, um, and that he will push himself hardest of all, but he'll push other people pretty hard too. Um, and I think it's a really good performance. I know I when David, my Battleship Retention co-host, when he uh, saw the film, he had a problem with uh, Miles Teller because he thought that uh, Teller was coming across as, as a certain type of arrogant, and, that, uh, and he thought that was coming from the actor. When I saw Whiplash uh, in the theater with my friend, my friend, um, I think, got a a degree in music. He had majored in French horn. And so he was part of these orchestras. And he said, well, he goes, yeah, I guess there's an arrogance there. But it's not the arrogance of a hip young actor. It's the arrogance of a drummer. Hmm. Uh, And he said, like, in my experience, drummers have a very specific attitude and Miles Teller's got it. Yeah. Who and he is himself a drummer. Like, you know, he he did all that. Um, It's amazing. I mean, he's really, really. I mean, I I don't know from good or bad drumming, but it's it's really amazing to watch him do what he does. He's doing those things. It's not like it's not like uh, Sean Penn in uh, Sweet and Low Down, Sweet and Low Down, where where the camera kind of drifts away from his fingers. And no, he's doing this. And it's really impressive. Yeah. And yeah, so he's great. And and, and that's before we started recording, you and I were talking about musicals and that a lot of the problem for me is that there would be such an emphasis on the singing that people forget to act. Hmm. Um, and in this case, he's drumming, but he, often he needs to show a very specific kind of intensity. Uh, aside from a physical intensity, he also needs to show an emotional intensity, certainly in that last scene. 
And I think he's able to do it. And I think that speaks to his, his ability as an actor and his ability as a drummer, that he is able to do the things he needs to do so much so that he's also able to act in that moment as well. And so I think he really does a great job. I haven't seen that much else with him in it. I saw Fantastic Four, and I would venture to say he's miscast. What about uh, the, uh, what's the one? Ah, it's not Hunger Games. It's the one that's kind of like it. Oh, uh, Divergent? Yes, Divergent. I've Divergent. Not, I haven't seen that. Either. I've seen those because Aubrey, my wife, uh, wanted to see them, and so I'm watching them. And How's he in those? He he plays kind of the same kind of guy. You know, okay. that's he just kind of has the you know people are typecast because they kind of fit that thing anyway. And he yeah. he just has the face of someone who looks down on people, and he does so in the Divergent movies as well. There's a there's a, a haughtiness to yes. the way he carries himself. Yeah, I guess so. No, but and I just, think that that go ahead. He ha- he he tends to have kind of a perpetual smirk at mm-hmm. things that implies that he's just sort of amused at what the all these other people are doing and actually maybe that does make it work a little bit for fantastic four because he's playing a character that's brilliant Mm -hmm. and uh but the character is not supposed to be like arrogant so maybe it's not the best casting but um but yeah i thought he did a really great job in this role it's entirely possible he may never do better than this role Mm. um as far as the type of character that he might because damien chazelle pushed him to be as as good or better than he ever thought he could be Maybe. And also, honestly, I feel like when you've got, I mean, quite literally, it, it, the film almost mirrors, the, the, the making of the film almost mirrors the content of the film. Because when you've got J.K. Simmons yelling in your face and you as an actor, it's like, well, I don't want to disappear because he's huge right now. And I, if I don't meet his challenge, I'm going to go away completely. And I am the lead. This is my story. Mm. I need to, I, it's, it, it, I will be failing if I let him dominate, uh, the film my story. and he, and he does dominate the film, but at this, but it is definitely Andrew's film. Like in those moments, yeah, you're focused on JK Simmons yelling, but you are also focusing very much on what Andrew's holding in. Yeah. Um, and those scenes are, are very much electric and it is, it is very much a partnership. There's a codependency as far as the actors go and as far as the characters go. And so it's a, there's a fun little bit of, uh, uh, synchronicity there. Yeah. Um, so are there any other thoughts that you, well, I know that you have, I think any of these, I mean, there's so many themes in this movie you could yeah. kind of attack. We probably don't have time, but just to name them, the idea of the romantic, rom- romanticized notion of genius yeah and what is required uh especially i think from an american point of view of to to achieve genius or if you have genius to to get it to where everyone is enjoying it not just you or your family um that's definitely something that could be talked about it's it's inherent in the movie um the idea of uh are the difference between pushing and inspiring because in Mm -hmm. that in that bar scene he's talking about about like pushing people as if you know, pushing his students to be better as if he's trying to inspire them it's almost like his notion of what is inspiring is so warped that yeah. to him that is inspiring it's like i'm inspiring you to be better than you think you can be yeah i'm going to be that guy that pushes you and i guess the other thing is uh, the last thing that we, i guess we could talk about more is uh well actually we did talk about it some just the fact that um, we've got a villain in the movie, and the the question of whether the villain is actually evil yeah. is fascinating to me. And like, you could talk about villains from any number of movies. Like, are they actually evil? If you actually think about them in that world, as if this was a real world, and the way they're behaving, they are the bad guys. But 
we were talking about Rocky movies earlier, like like uh, the evil Russians. But think about what the Russians are 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 doing and why they're doing it. Are they actually evil? I mean, they they were born into an ideology that they can't resist. That's their lives. So I mean, boy, did I not expect to be talking about Rocky Four as much as we have <laughs> on this episode. Fourteen but that's okay. montages in a row. That's all that movie is. I think. <laughs> Um, but anyway, th- th- there's all that to say. There's this movie's it's just, it's a rich movie, and there are a lot of things you can talk about probably probably for hours and hours. Yeah, but and we I, shouldn't. Right? Yes, because uh, we've we've all got places to be, and I'm if I do this right, I won't hit the worst traffic Oof. going home. Um, yeah, so I feel like we should move into the companion film. The companion film is going to be James Bridges' The Paper Chase, which came out in 1973, uh, which is a film that I, I don't remember exactly when I saw it. That It was one of those movies, and every once in a while this would come about, that uh, in high school, like once I w- really started getting into movies, my parents said, you should watch this movie. Uh, and almost it was almost always like a movie that they saw at a certain time in their lives that like meant something. And that came out in 1973. I think my parents at that point... We're in college, mm. um, and this is about the college experience, among Their other movie. things. It is a movie for them. Um, same as when they saw The Big Chill in 1982. At that point, they were, they'd been married for a few years. They've, they'd had, uh, I think, probably a couple of kids, and they were, I think, probably 10 years out of college, roughly. And so, so yeah, The Big Chill is very much for that. So my, That's why my, Look Who's Talking means so much to me, because I saw it when I was a baby. So if you could just be quiet the rest of the episode, that would be really great. I yes, would appreciate sir. that. Um, but yeah, so I watched it, and indeed, I really enjoyed it. I, I one of the things that I that I had known about it is that it had won Best Supporting Actor for John Hausman, a guy not necessarily known first and foremost for his acting. Um, I knew him probably not at this not at this point, but I would later go on to know him as uh, Orson Welles' longtime collaborator and producer in theater. I did not know that. Yeah, he this was is new to me. Yeah, he was the producer on you know uh, all those Mercury things. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, like uh, like Broadway stuff. Okay. And so like if you were to watch the Tim Robbins film Cradle Will Rock, okay. which is about Orson Welles' staging of that uh, that play, um, you'll see John Hausman played by Carrie Elwes. Okay. And so yeah, it's um it's an interesting. He's had an interesting life, John Hausman, and so. Um, so I I think that was the only thing I had heard is that oh he plays like a particularly tough law professor uh and he won best supporting actor for it and I was like that sounds good to me let's watch it and I enjoyed it I liked it a lot I don't think it's necessarily a perfect film and I'd be in, I'd be intrigued to watch the TV uh series that it spawned also with John Hausman mm-hmm. um but I liked it a lot partially because for for some of the same reasons as I like Whiplash to the point that the moment I saw Whiplash I thought okay I know that we got to do an episode about it, and I, and I know that the paper chase will be the companion film. Because in both, you have people that are striving for quality. They're striving for a very specific goal. Um, and in doing so, they're encountering uh, some mentors or professors that are particularly tough, and so they feel like they need to prove something to their professors, prove something to themselves, and in doing so, maybe they have been changed a little bit. And so I really like the paper chase. What are your thoughts on it? I uh, I, I randomly saw it earlier this year, and then uh, for the first time, for the first time, and then uh, when you mentioned it was going to be the companion piece, I watched it again just a few days ago, mm-hmm. 
And I like the movie. Uh, if, I mean, I, I do have problems with it. Sure. And, and I think a lot of my problems uh, stem from the fact that it was 1973. And I keep thinking about like that era of filmmaking. It's like mm-hmm. from about 68, 69 on, you know, it, it, the loosened standards of like what could be on screen and whatnot. It felt it felt almost like it needed to embrace some of that more. Do you know what sure, I mean? It absolutely. Fe- it felt a little, um, of course, the word that comes to mind is chased, but hmm. the movie's called Paper Chase. Um, but it, de- it, feel, it does feel, not that I want like nudity and like rampant, you know, dialogue or profanity or anything, but it just, it didn't feel like a real world. Um, like they were, and I, you, you almost can't blame it because it is 1973. Um, the expectations of the audience at that time were different than they are now. Yeah. Somebody coming out of Whiplash, for instance. Yeah. And if they remade Paper Chase, it would have to be kind of like, it wouldn't be like Hausman yelling in his ear. Yeah. But it would be more intense for sure. Yeah. And this movie felt, uh, I will say, as the movie progressed, when it should be picking up intensity, it felt a little like it was becoming a little flaccid to me. Hmm. Um, it felt like that the the contention between uh, what, Timothy Bottoms. Yeah. No Hart, idea. Mr. Hart. Mr. Hart. Well done. Uh, between Mr. Hart and his professor, whose name is? Kingsfield. Kingsfield. How do you know these things? I don't know. I just know them. It's right in front of you, isn't it? Uh, I would have known it anyway. Uh, I believe you. Um, it never feels like it rises to a pitch where Hart is actually feeling like, if I don't pass this class, I'm broken in half. This is the man who's breaking me. I need to overcome this man. Right. There's the scene where uh, he toward the end where he walks up after being kind of berated a little bit, a little bit, mm-hmm. stress on a little bit, berated a little bit in class um, by Hausman. He walks to the front of the class and no, Hausman asks him to the front of the class and, and hands. Yes. Here's a dime. Here's a dime. Go call your mom and tell her that you will never be a lawyer, a lawyer because you're not the right material. And so uh, Hart takes the dime, turns around, walking back to his chair and he realizes he this is a great moment. All the students are looking at him. So he turns around, tells Hausman to his face. He says, you are, I forget what he calls him. He says, uh, I apologize everybody for the language. He says, you are a son of a bitch, Kingsfield. Yes. That's one of the reasons I remember the name of the character. Um, and then Kingsfield says, that's the most intelligent thing you've said all day. Take your seat. Yeah. He's already like walking out the door. Yeah. And he says, take your seat. So there's a, that moment is almost like, um, the finale of that's, that's not the finale of the movie right there's still like a test to take and all this kind of romance to take care of and stuff but it feels almost like the the climax of uh, Whiplash in that they're kind of on equal footing at that point yeah suddenly um, but the problem is that by that point in the movie I feel like that that Hart is not really I, first of all I don't really believe that he's the smartest kid in class but the movie wants you to think that he seems more like your sister's friend. I don't know. He just—he doesn't seem like he has a whole lot to him. Yeah, I see him as as talented, but not necessarily. There are brilliant. guys who are there answering, are, yeah. in class that are obviously more smart, at least book yeah. smart, than him, yeah. and also have a bigger voice, you yeah. know, and purport themselves or comport themselves as a lawyer might. Yeah. Whereas Bottoms has his big bushy hair. Yeah. Kind of Edward wears. Herman is in this film. Come and on, he's great. Yeah, and he's a lawyer. He would That's totally a lawyer. be a lawyer. Yeah. Um. So there's it's not, a lawyer on his way to being a judge, and he's not even thirty. Nope. Um, yeah. What was he a judge in? No, I'm just saying that. Like, uh, no, he, I think he was. He a judge probably in was. Yeah. I don't know. Um, in any case, all that to say that the comparison kind of makes Paper Chase feel weak. Um, 
it's not a bad movie. In fact, it's a it's it's an enjoyable movie, but it feels like it kind of peters out toward the end for me. There is a scene at the end that I think is particularly brilliant, um, and it's when Hart is no longer in Kingsfield's class, and he sees Kingsfield walking along, and he thinks, you know what, I'm going to be not even the bigger man, but I'm going to show this guy that. I'm not in your class anymore. We're equals. And uh, yes, we had our problems, but I, I appreciate what you did for me. Mm-hmm. And so he goes up and says, you know, Mr. Uh, Professor Kingsfield, and, he, and he's kind of complimentary of him and just say, like, I wanted to thank you for that. And Kingsfield just says, oh, thank you very much. And it's, cl- it's clear Kingsfield does not know this kid at all. He's just one of many. And that moment well, is... he says, he says, and what is your name? It, that's right, yes. And just like... and. You know, and Kingsfield feels, you know, appropriately complimented and all that. But at the same time, like, it's so sobering. There's the marked difference between the two movies, actually, yeah. is, is the fact that um, he has not found his Charlie Parker in the law world. Yeah. Not, and I haven't either, because I'm watching the movie going, is he really all that? I don't yeah. think he is. And clearly, Kingsfield doesn't think so either. Otherwise, he would have remembered the kid's name. Yeah, and but that's the thing is like that maybe not that that's probably not what Kingsfield is doing. He Kingsfield is maybe a little bit closer to Full Metal Jacket, where he has a job to do. Everybody is equally, you know. I, at one point, he says, you know, you come in and your brains are mu- your skulls are filled with mush, and then I shape them into lawyers, you know. <laughs> and so clearly, like he sees everybody a certain way. Um, and Timothy Bottoms is just like reading so much more into this relationship, uh, hmm. which I think is fascinating. And in a way, that's I'm sure that's sort of what what Kingsfield is trying to do. It's like if I get people, if I get them angry at me and defiant of me, then that will motivate them to be better lawyers. So I'm going to do that, but I don't actually care much about these students or yeah. you know anything like that. I'm just I have a job to do, and. And when you and you see that scene, and Hart is clear has it is completely worked on him. Like he thought, all right, truce. Meanwhile, the other side didn't even know they were fighting. Exactly. You know? <laughs> and I think it's a brilliant scene. I love it. You know, yeah. um, when you think of the teachers that have meant a lot to you, one way or another, maybe one or two of them will remember who you are. Hmm. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, I there there are probably I think there are three teachers uh, in high school that remember me and then there's i believe one of my college teachers who knows who i am and that's it um you know because you're just one of many and it's a very it's a it's kind of depressing but it doesn't have to be if you don't let it be right um and so scenes like that i feel like that's a really strong that's the that's the last time they interact in the Mm -hmm. film and i feel like that's a really strong note to end their relationship on is to find out they in fact don't have one exactly um it's uh you know, in a way, it's 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 depressing, but it's just the the reality. That's of the more situation. reality than uh, than the Fletcher situation, probably. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what I what I do like is that so in the paper chase, Hart is talking is dating this girl who I believe winds up being Kingsfield's daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, Spoilers. Yeah, sorry. Uh, and she has she saw what her dad is, and doesn't seem to like him that much and she has seen one lost one person after another go to this law school and change and she has no patience for it and she seems to like Hart because he does have at the very least there's an individualistic quality to him that the other people don't have it's there's, his hair it's his hair it's his mustache um and there comes a time when she just says 
like you, you're you're losing who you are. You, you're losing your Midwestern charm, mm-hmm. and you're going to look how scared you are of Kingsfield and and just and of failure. It's like, and because of that fear, you're going to become exactly what they want you to be. You're going to lose yourself. And I think she says, uh, she says it would be, you know, it would be better if you flunked because then there might still be hope for you, you know. And in that same way, like if you look at Andrew maybe the worst thing for him is that he's more talented than others, you know, and that talent is going to carry him a long way. And in doing so, he might lose any humanity he has as as, that's what happened has happened with Fletcher. Fletcher is a, is he is himself a gifted musician um, and a gifted conductor and, and uh, arranger of compositions and stuff. Um, And, he decided that that was the most important thing and thus nothing else, including uh, other human beings would ever be as important. And so, yeah. and at this, at the end of paper chase, you have heart, you know, in a, in a way that I feel like is very 1973. He decides he wants to, it's the youth culture of, yeah. speaking to the movie. Yeah. He, he wants to rebel a little bit against this thing that he himself has, has valued. And so he chooses not to see his final grades. Uh, he throws it into the ocean in a big dramatic gesture and uh, and it's meant to be like, yes, this might be a thing that I'm pursuing, but I'm not going to let myself be defined by it. And whereas Andrew is going to be forever I, I defined so, by like, here's a, such a cutesy moment, though, to okay. end the movie on. The, uh, oh, in the paper chase? Yeah. Oh, sure. He, when he makes a paper airplane out of the envelope. That's that contains, it. Yes, yes. It contains his grades. Yeah. She's like, Aren't you going to look at it? He walks out and then throws it out. I'm like, yeah. this is definitely the the shows the marked difference between the two characters, Andrew yeah. and this guy. Um. But by that point, I also don't care what his grades are. I, I keep coming back to this. I don't, mm-hmm. don't believe. It's almost like like the movie should have been about one of the other guys. Well, I do like the, the character who who is very smart and very brilliant. He's got a photographic memory and all that kind of thing. It's but great, he, yeah. he doesn't have a lawyer's mind. And you see the tragedy of that. Because mm-hmm. um, he he's, he's committed himself to this point. Yeah. To the point of taking exams. And yeah. uh, he's just not cut out for this. Yeah. And the, the Online Lawyers Society said, sorry, you're not a part <laughs> exactly. of it. Um, they threw that symbol at him. Uh, yeah, yeah, but it's uh, by that point, I was, you know, I was still watching the movie. Now, it's not a bad movie. Yeah. Um, one expectation I think we should lower, since we are making the this the companion piece, is that Hausman never raises his voice. Right. It's not like he's, like, leaning over and, like, yelling, you know, legal jargon yeah. into somebody's face with F-bombs. Um he never raises his voice. He he never really seems like he cares if anyone yeah. rises to his level. Yeah. Um, he's he's pretty cold, and I kind of like that. Yeah. He's like professors that I remember in college. Hmm. Um, I remember there was a, a professor, uh, an English professor at my my school, whose name I won't mention, um, and kind of known for how cold he could be. And he was a, an older gentleman, and a student would walk in late, and he would stop teaching. And look, and so now everyone's looking. Yeah. And say to that person who's just like trying to scraggle in, straggle in, and he's got like stack of books and stuff and like making their way to the desk along the wall like a rat. And he stops and looks, and so they freeze. And he goes, we come to class on time, or we come to class not at all. And then kind of gives a little joke, and like he's making a joke out of it, just kind yeah. of giggles after it. And this was sort of his tone for like the entire semester. And then I took a couple classes with him. Um, kind of beloved by some. I think for his coldness or his irascibility or whatever yeah. you might want to say, but he's more like Hausman is more like that guy. Yeah. In this movie, um, 
in that he's not calling out anyone to be better necessarily. Um, he wants all of his students to do well. He's that guy. Which, but he's, which provides its own motivation because you want to, like, well, if he sees us all as a group, how amazing would it be if he knew me hmm. specifically? Like, I'm going to be so great that he's going to remember me. Mm-hmm. But that's not how he operates. Yeah, it's like, it's like the whole movie is like, because it's trained on Hart. Yeah. And Hart, to me, isn't the most outstanding student in the class by far. Yeah. Um, it's almost like, in my meta mind, you know, I'm thinking like, Hart at some point inside his own brain is like, oh my gosh, this movie's about me. <laughs> yeah. It's not about that guy. It's about me, so I should try harder, and I should really make this a us-against-them kind of thing. Yeah. And it never really amounts to that to me, to me ultimately. It's still enjoyable. Yeah, I do think it loses some. I think it loses a narrative thread and then picks up a thematic one, which is maybe why. I was going to mention that. Which is maybe why it's not as impactful at the end. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I find myself being like, "Well, I do care if he passed or not because look at all look at all the trouble he went through Mm -hmm. to to do it, and look at the and the fact that well, we did just watch a whole movie, Um, of course." But uh, but yeah, I think I think it loses a sense of urgency that a plot or character driven film can have. But if something is thematically driven, it doesn't. It 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 is often not driven that much. Yeah. So yeah. what I liked about it thematically, though, if you want to talk about that, sure. is um, there's so much talk in the movie over the most used word in the movie is probably contracts or contractual yeah. or that kind or, of thing. Or outline. It, outline is said a lot. Outline yeah. definitely he- the heavy object in many scenes is the outline that they're mm-hmm. going to pass between each other. Um, but no, the class itself, the Hausman is teaching, is is uh, the law of contracts or contract contract mm-hmm. law. And so they're always talking about contracts, and it can't help but by the time you're bored with the characters to start thinking, well, what does that mean? Why did it have to be contract law? Yeah. You start thinking about all the characters and all the contracts, if you will, that they've made with each, with each other. Um, the contract that, if I can do this, it sounds a little pretentious to even talk about it in context of this movie, but just the father-daughter yeah. contract. She says, he says, well, why didn't you tell me that you were Hausman's son, that you were a Kingsfield's son, uh, a daughter? And she says, she kind of blows it off by saying, well, I haven't been his daughter much lately or something like that, which is a terrible spackle for the script, but it does say something about her and their relationship. And that is that he has essentially broken his contract with his own daughter. Yeah. Um, uh, All of these kids have made a contract with, you know, the school to learn, um, however they can do it. You've got the contract that they've made with each other by virtue of, uh, I should say they, it's um, Hart and... Lindsay Wagner, right? Mm-hmm. That's who it is. Yeah. So all these contracts and contracts with in this uh, study group. Yeah. I'm going to do this chapter. I'm going to outline this chapter. You're going to outline that chapter. By the end, we're all going to have the outlines that we can look at. Study, pass with flying colors. One by one, they all get picked off by pressure, yeah. by stress, by each other. Um, so that so there aren't. So that's another contract that's broken. So you just look, and every facet of this movie is a contract that's been signed essentially yeah. and then broken in some way and i find that fascinating because that's kind of like life yeah um yeah that's that's all i had to say because i don't want to yeah and that's that something dog. that i haven't that i never thought about so there there's it is a good movie i mean it's not great um but there's great things about it I agree. and yeah. um it's one that i that people don't really talk about very much so and, and in fact if people remember it at all there are people that remember it more as a tv show than a movie actually mm. um so so one of the things that I want to talk about, and I want to try and maybe keep this to like the last 10 to 15 minutes. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was a, a thing that comes up on this show a lot is, 
and something that pro- that came up in our discussion of War Room, um, is if you are a Christian and you are doing something, whether it be, you know, you're a pastor or you're a police officer or a doctor or a filmmaker, that you, you have a responsibility to do it to the best of your ability. Um, and the reason that we talk about that a lot is because there are people, uh, as at Alpha MegaCon, I was talking to some uh, the, these uh, older women that were at the at my panel, and I had made a point, to, and I made a point to them that I think I've said on this show before, which is, if you were a do- if you were a doctor, let's say you were a Christian doctor, and you did your job as well as a Christian film director, <laughs> man, like how long would you keep your job? Yeah, how often would you be sued? You might even be in jail, like because of, due to just horrible negligence. Yeah, you know, um, Christian film directors, I think, and and studios, they are relying a lot on the forgiveness uh, of their audience. Whereas you can't really do that in other professions. Yeah. Um, and even with music, you know, like with, like with, uh, uh, whiplash, if you're out of tune or you're off the beat, it will become very clear, very, uh, very quickly that y- you, you need to be better. Um, and so we, we emphasize on the show, like how important it is to demand more of yourself all the time. Well, whiplash comes along and says, all right, yes, demand more of yourself. Hey, where does that end by the way? Um, and it was a tough move. It's a tough movie for me on that, in that regard. Uh, how much, if we Christians are required to do everything as, you know, everything we can as though we were doing it for God, because when in fact we are, um, how hard do we push ourselves? And do we push ourselves beyond the point that we think we're capable of? What are we willing to sacrifice? Like, obviously, you don't sacrifice your relationship with your wife or your family or something like that. But you might sacrifice a little bit of it. It's, well, I could hang out with my wife another day or I could spend the day writing or, you know, watching a movie so that I might better be able to talk about films or whatever. Like, how far do you go with that? That seems like a reasonable compromise. And you already did one day. Why not two? Like, she loves me and I'm already spending time with her. Like, how far do you go in if if you are viewing, let's stick with career for the time being. If you are viewing your career as an extension of God's will in your life and and the better you do it, the the more you're the more obedient you, you're being, which I don't think is necessarily uh, the best uh, way to look at it. But if that's the case, then it seems to me that you would be about as uncompromising as possible, and that would take priority. But obviously, we know that, you know, if you over-prioritize things, you know, almost anything uh, over God, well, not even almost, if you prioritize things over God or other people, then you are, I think, probably at that point out of step with God's will for your life. I don't know. What do you think about all this well, kind I think of thing? A lot of things ran through my head as you were talking. Yeah. Um, the one I'll land on is the idea of uh, of uh, not compromising. And what, is, what does that look like yeah. in, uh, in a Christian's life versus Andrew's life? Uncomprom- it's going I think it I think it's going to look totally different. Uncompromising is 
can't can't be the sacrifice of things that also are also important. Yeah. Um, whereas clearly it was for Andrew and and people like him who are driven to perfection in, mm-hmm. in, in whatever field they're in. Um, uncompromising is quieter, I think, just like any other aspect of belief mm-hmm. is quieter. And I'm, I'm, even now I'm fishing for what do I mean by quieter? Yeah. Um, I mean that it's, I think ultimately it's such an internal thing that those compromises that you don't want to make are, are they're, they're, they're more intangible things than uh, dumping your girlfriend or you're, you know, cheating on your, you wouldn't cheat on your wife. To, right. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to understand myself while I'm saying this. It's difficult because it's, it is, it's a difficult thing. It's because you do, we have a mandate, especially in our country, to be the best that you can possibly be. Right. Um, you are an individual. You are given an opportunity. Every American is. Rise to the level of what every American could be. Yeah. And, uh, and that looks like, you know, 300 million different things, if you take that definition yeah. to its extreme, to its logical conclusion. Um, but what is... I'm thinking off the cuff about this, because I don't know. It's like, what is... For me, what is uncompromising? Yeah. For me, uncompromising, in terms of my career, in terms of my belief, um, I believe that God, uh, through the course of my life, has shown me things that I do well, or has allowed me to recognize things that I do well. And some of those were in high school and college, and then later, sort of the fruition of certain things. I'm like good at certain things. For me, I believe that's writing. I like to, I like to write. Um, I'm good at writing. People respond to the things I write, and this is good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's validation, which is another theme that we could have talked about at length in, uh, in Whiplash. But once I land on writing as a thing that I want to pursue as a career, and then I should be uncompromising about because I need to at this point, make money for my family. Right. Um, I need to be the best I can so that I can continue to do the thing I like to do. And I feel like that it's something that God's shown me that I can do well. I, I, it's incumbent upon me to not compromise. What does that mean, to compromise? For me, to compromise then means to not write. What does yeah. that mean? Well, when I have an opportunity to write, like when I take six months off from my job, which I'm doing currently, um, to in order to get ahead so to speak, in writing or whatever that might mean, that means don't also watch movies uh, all the time Mm. or uh, go hang out with friends all the time when you could be writing. Um, I do those things still, but within reason. Yeah. Uh, The the thing that has to be the focus of my day, if I'm not compromising, is I have to get three pages today. I have to get a page. I have to get a, an idea, <laughs> whatever it is that your goal is at this stage in the writing process, that has to be what you're, you're, what you're not compromising on. And so let's say you are, you've devoted today to writing. That's what you're going to do. And you've decided I'm going to write for eight full hours. Not possible. Well, I know, but <laughs> let's, you know. I'm not Stephen King. purely hypothetical. Um, and then your wife comes home early from work. Wife. What was that? Don't even have to ask the question. Wife. Okay. But. Even if, like, and she says, hey, let's go out to dinner. Now, 
Let's say you went out to dinner yesterday and the day before. Let's say you've been seeing a lot of each other and today is, and maybe an argument could be made that she should be compromising and understand that this is a writing day for you. She knew that. Mm -hmm. So why is she now doing this? You know, how far do you, how hard do you fight against that? Do you fight against that? Or do you just say she wants to do it, whether she is respecting my time or not? She wants to do it, and I want it, and I value no. her. So that's what I'm doing. No, that that would be ridiculous. I mean, that scenario demands a conversation yeah. on some level, an exchange of words. You know, like let's let's talk about what you're asking me versus what I told you that I need to do today. Right. And that's happened. Um, and she'll Aubrey is the kind of woman who, and we've talked about our careers and what we want to do um, with the talents that we feel like we have so often that we. I don't want to call it a shorthand, but we don't have to talk about it a lot. When one person says, oh, I need to get this done, um, or I need to get at least another hour in, or something like that, yeah. that always becomes, oh, oh, I, I'm sorry, I, I didn't realize. Or, right. well, after that, let's talk about this thing. So it's yeah. it's worked out well for us because we get along really well, I think, in that, yeah. in that way. Uh, example is, um, I told you before we started recording that I finally finished a draft of my the pilot I've been working on for mm-hmm. what seems like forever um, on Saturday. Of this week, or of last week, I finished a draft, and that finishing line I had hoped would be earlier earlier in the day, but it was more like 11 o'clock mm-hmm. on Saturday night. And uh, I told her at the beginning of the day, I told her on Friday, I said, what I'm trying to do is finish this thing so I can get it out to some friends by Sunday. And uh, uh, so that m- probably means that most of Saturday will be gone. And I reiterated again on Saturday, here's... It's funny how it, it kind of turns in my mind because of my own neuroses, but Aubrey was more than willing to allow me to see the end of this stage by yeah. turning in a draft to my friends by Saturday or by Sunday. So, but I would, I would often throughout the day say, oh, I feel so guilty because we're not doing anything together. <laughs> I'm like, no. do you want to, like, I don't know, should we eat together or, or like have, go out to eat or take a walk or something? And, um, and of course she was willing to do that if I suggested it, but, um, a lot of, it seems like a lot of the, the compromise, if you want to call it that could mm-hmm. take place on those days is generated by me feeling guilty that I'm not actually spending more time with her when yeah. she's in the same room or in the same apartment. I, I just start feeling guilty about that. Yeah. And she might have to be the one that says, well, didn't you want to get these to these people? And I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. And also part of that is like after a certain point in the day, you don't want to be working. You don't want to be staring at the same pages right. more than you already have. And so, yeah, give me a break. But I have a, a, a challenge to self. Can I do this? She's helping me do this by saying, keep going. I should keep going. Yeah. And that's how you honor your wife in that scenario is the, or girlfriend, whatever, your best friend, whoever's that person is that's encouraging you is by saying, yes, you're right. I should continue to write today. As opposed to, I've been writing enough, you're here, let's go have fun. Yeah. You need a blossom steam. So I'm talking about all this in the, hopefully in the context of, of compromising or not compromising. Yeah. For me, compromising is basically sticking to a plan. Or not compromising is, is sticking to a plan, um, no matter what comes up within reason. And I feel like the one thing that I have thought about lately is uh, the idea of working so much whether it be my day job or one of the now three podcasts that I have. Oh, my. Um, although the third one is with my wife, so that's actually a lot of fun. That's good. Um, 
So, oh, which by the way, I guess I uh, plug away. Yeah, it's called uh, Worth Playing For. It is about Survivor, and now that the season of Survivor has officially started, uh, you can find that at battleshippretention.com. We're enjoying it tremendously, That's whether great. you listen or not. So, um, anyway, uh, you know, and I get so focused, and then there are other things that I that I'm going to be working on for the future that I think are, are very important, and so. I think it's very easy to look at what you're doing career-wise or maybe not even necessarily career-wise. Just like it could be maybe you're volunteering for something, just like a passion that God has given you that maybe you're particularly good at. Um, and I think it's easy to get so focused on the thing that you're doing that you forget why you're doing it in the first place. Let's say you're a filmmaker. Well, you lo- you have a, a story to tell. You have a theme to explore. That be, but you're not doing it in a vacuum. You, you, are sh- you are telling a story to somebody. You are exploring a, th- a theme with somebody. You are sharing an experience with somebody. Um, and so if you ha- wind up sort of forsaking the concept of humanity and human connection, whether it be with a spouse or a friend or whatever, um, I feel like you wind up and you're doing it in pursuit of perfection. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think you wind up doing yourself a disservice, uh, and maybe your art a disservice. Uh, and I know I'm talking primarily about art, but it could be anything. Um, you're doing that a disservice if you are cutting off one of the big motivators and one of the big aspects, not merely wanting to connect with your audience, but also how you connect with your audience. If you have no concept of what it's like to, deal with people, then how on earth are you going to tell a story about somebody dealing with people? Sure. Um, you know, and so it, it kind of reminds me in some ways of sweet and low down, hmm. uh, which we, you and I talked about before, uh, by before, I mean several years ago. Um, you know, there's this character who, d- who doesn't like to let himself get connected to people because he wants to put his, and he doesn't like to, to emote as a person because he likes to save it for his music. Uh, meanwhile, once he finally breaks down and he has a major regret in his life because he neglected a relationship uh, and he starts to be a little bit more open with his emotions, his, his work gets better because mm-hmm. now he has a better sense of what humanity means of and that is who he's making music for. And so, you know, and you hear this all the time with pastors that they get so focused on serving the flock and all that sort of thing, serving the congregation, serving God, that they, they get so focused on the serving that they forget why they're doing it at all. You know, I've, I've talked to so many pastors and people in ministry who talk about they, they forget to pray hmm. because they're so busy doing stuff for God, failing to recognize that not only uh, are you sort of losing, keeping, uh, taking your eye off the prize, but also God is the thing that will sustain them through this. And so, you know, it astounds me. I've been thinking a lot lately about, you know, uh, Satan and uh, maybe because Halloween times is coming up. (laughs) But uh, and just the idea of of the ways in which we get distracted. And it's like, if we're doing the good, if we're doing the right thing, first off, it's hard enough to want to do the right thing in the first place. But if you're doing the right thing, then suddenly, you know, you can start believing a different kind of lie. You know, if, if, if the goal of Satan is to keep us from doing the right thing, then there are so many layers of that. It's 
do you actually want to do the right thing or would you rather do what you want to do? Uh, okay, I'll do the right thing. All right, okay, hang on. I can still work with this. You want to do the right thing. All right, well, you better do the best possible job. Otherwise, you don't. You shouldn't do it at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you will be dishonoring to God if you fall short of absolute perfection. So you need to focus on that 100%. No, there's no time for your spouse. There's no time for uh, your friends. Because don't you realize that you're doing this for God? Isn't God more important than your family? Uh, and eventually it's, it's yes, yes, yes. God's important. Uh, and it's important to engage with him and read your Bible and, and pray on a regular basis. But let's not forget, you're doing something for him. And that's yeah. also good. So just focus on that. And eventually you lose all concept of why you're doing this in the first place. And then it's just perpetual motion. And then it's very difficult to stop. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's that's a big, you know, part of the compromise that we're talking about is plugging into why you're doing any of this in the first place. Um, and the more you do that, the better the product will actually be, I think. Um, but at the same time, so like I focus on that, but the flip side is you also need to do within that. And as, as always, Christianity is about walking a fine line. You also do still need to demand something of yourself, uh, as an artist, as a, as a, as a worker or whatever, you need to demand excellence. It's, you can't demand perfection because there's no such thing. And perfection will usually mean that you're, you're pushing other things to the side. But you can demand excellence and still keep your eye on God, still focus on other people. Uh, and I don't know. It's, I feel like I'm being contradictory, and it's not about contradic- contradicting uh, an earlier point. It's about recognizing that they're both equally important, mm-hmm. and you need to try and do both. Yeah, which is of course infinitely. It's infinitely harder to try to balance your passion and your career or whatever, and your family and your spiritual life and your and God. It's infinitely harder to balance those things than it is to simply choose one or the other. Even if choosing perfection, like in Whiplash, even if it means drumming so much that your hands bleed, anyone would look at that and say, like look at that. That's incredibly hard. And it's like, yes, it is, but it's philosophically easy. You've made your decision. Mm-hmm. And now at the very least you can, you can rest easy in that, but it's just like, and in the same way it's like, ah, my career is only so, so I'll give a, I'll give like a C plus effort because I'm focusing on my family. And it's like, there's nothing wrong with focusing on your family, but if you were also called to do this other thing, then you need to focus on that too. And that also needs, you know, you need to demand excellence of yourself there as well. Like, as I've said a million times on the show, extremes are easy, even if they're hard to pull off philosophically, they're easy. And that's why we entertain them. Uh, whereas, you know, what Andrew and what Fletcher are doing is kind is easy, as difficult as it might be to execute. They at least know for sure what their philosophy is. And it is, uh, you know, awful. <laughs> yes. Um, so I've been talking a lot. What, no, what do you think I, about it? I think it that is? a lot of what you're saying kind of comes back to the phrase, a kind of tried and true idea, Christian circles anyway, of uh, avoiding making things your God. Yeah. Um, that the balance that you're talking about, that you're describing as, you know, the ideal is actually the mark of someone who has not made any of them his God. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like your job, your family, your friends, all the, all these things require balance for you to be happy, I believe, but also as evidence that 
you haven't made one single thing above God. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if there's much to say beyond that, except that, I don't know, that's, that's almost impossible. <laughs> yeah. And um, that's, because I, I, just to say that, you know, when I think about my own, when I was talking about my career path and all that stuff, it's like writing is, is what I want to do. It's what I do do. Um, but when, when, at what point am I making it my God? Is it when I tell Aubrey, no, I, I have to do this now? When the greatest gift that I've ever received in my life was is my wife. Yeah. Um, I don't know. These things are are difficult to parse, and it's almost like a case by case thing uh, application that you have to you know think of because they everyone is different, every situation is different. But I think there's a truism as well. If you know when you think about it that you would rather be writing than be with your wife, mm-hmm. then you are, something's something's out of whack. Um, and you know, you've made that thing your God. Yeah. And I feel like when you make something your God, there's a, there is an element of perfection there. Like I need to be the perfect husband. I need to be the perfect writer. I need to be even the perfect Christian. There's a, f- and anytime you're demanding perfection of yourself, then anytime you fall short will be seen as a crippling failure. Mm-hmm. And there, t- and there's probably not a whole lot of forgiveness there of yourself. Um, Whereas if you're trying to kind of be in the middle there and if you're trying to actually pursue God and all the other and find and prioritize all these other things, then there's nothing but forgiveness. It's, yeah, you fell short with this script, but you know what? You can A, always make this one better or B, the next one will be better. Like mm-hmm. it's, it doesn't have to crush you because you fell short of perfection. And it's like, yeah, you, di- you weren't the best husband in the world today. Uh, and you can be frustrated by that. You can either hate yourself tremendously because you fell short of perfection, or you can recognize that everybody makes mistakes. There's really no such thing as perfection. You know, apologize to your wife and then try to be better the next day. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, I, you know, I say extremes are easy and they're easy philosophically. They're hard to pull off, but also they are so, so unforgiving. Um, and so, whereas by making God your God, the one of the essence, uh, part of the essence of God is that he is forgiving and he doesn't demand perfection of you. And that is hopefully as, that is as freeing as, as, in, you know, entrapping and oppressive as some of these other things that we've been talking about mm-hmm. with, uh, with uh, the paper chase and with, with whiplash. So, uh, so yeah, and, and obviously you're going to make mistakes. You're going to prioritize one thing when you probably should not have in that moment. Um, and, uh, but you can always, you can always fix it and bring other people into this, whether it be a spouse, whether it be a friend, people who understand what your priorities should be, which is God first. Um, you know, and they can help you with this stuff. They can help correct you and they can also help encourage you when you are doing the right thing. So, you know, uh, we've been going for a while and I need to leave before traffic gets <laughs> awful. So, uh, so I will go ahead and leave it there. Um, if you have any emails, you can email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at morelessons. You can also like us on Facebook. I'm trying to think if there's any particular announcements. There are not, except for we are now getting into October. Ah. Which means it's Halloween times. And so we'll be talking about a lot of horror movies and suspense mm. films and just generally macabre stories. And I'm very excited. I feel like we've got a pretty good slate uh, lined up. 
So you will not want to miss that. There won't be any minisodes. It'll just be full-on episodes talking about these movies. So uh, I think that is about it. Uh, Robert, where can people find you online? I forget. Are you Pretty on? much right here. Right here? Okay. More than one lesson.com. There you go. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Ro- uh, Robert, thanks for being here. Absolutely. I thank almost called you Rob. Isn't that weird? I don't like Rob. You don't seem like a Rob. I'll say that. Thank you. Robbie. I could see you as a Robbie. I was a Bobby when I was a boy. Little Bobby Horn. I'm still a Bobby. My family calls me Bobby. They call, really? They do to this day. Fascinating. Can I call you Bobby? Sure. Can I call you Little Bobby Hornack? I would prefer. Oh, no, I like that. Oh, wow. Okay. I'll keep it's that in mind. It's very sweet. Just be over there when you do it. No problem. So, uh, on behalf of myself and Little Bobby Hornack, thank you for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye.